Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jim, Jim Fisher and Jenny Masbacher. It's January 11th, 2020. We're at Scenic Valley Farms in Jervis. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, let's start with the most important question. Uh, why wine? You want to go first? Sure. My story is like less interesting, which is that uh, why wine is because um, I knew that I probably wasn't going to have a, a great career out of my uh, art degree, <laughs> uh, which I mean, that's not, I knew that I probably didn't have the chops to make it uh, as a professional artist. Uh, so while I was in college, I got a part-time job uh, working in a winery tasting room. So I went to uh, Lewis and Clark College in Portland, and I grew up in the Portland area. I grew up in the in Beaverton in the suburbs, and uh, to save money going to a nice private college, I uh, stayed. I lived at home mm-hmm. um, during my college years, uh, and so I was looking to make money, uh, and I answered a Craigslist ad for a part-time tasting room job at Ponzi Vineyards, um, which at that time was like uh, their original tasting room winery, which was like 15 minutes from my parents' house, and so super easy commute, and uh, it was seemed like a good fit. I knew nothing about wine. Uh, I did not grow up in like a wine-drinking household, um, and but I was interested in it because the my kind of line of study uh, in art was kind of the was kind of like environmental art or landscape art Mm -hmm. and so I think I was just interested in being in a beautiful setting and I was really really into art history and all of the kind of nitty-gritty details uh, that go along with that and wine really appealed to me because it's so there's, it, it's so hand in hand with the development of human history. And so I think that, and the, the artistry of winemaking really appealed to me. So I got into it from the tasting room side of things. Uh, I worked there for uh, two summers and just became really, really enamored with it the way that so many people <laughs> do. Uh, and so I, uh, being in like student mode, wanted to learn everything about wine. And so, uh, I read as much as I could get my hands on. And the cool thing is that uh, working in a tasting room, that they, uh, there was a real feeling of this like kind of community reciprocity where uh, if you worked in a tasting room, you could go to other winery tasting rooms and taste for free because the idea was that they wanted people to have exposure and be able to recommend other wineries. Um, so uh, on my days off, uh, I would go uh, with friends and we would go taste around and just learn and talk to people and uh, became really immersed in in everything that was wine in the Willamette Valley, uh, which then I became like a really, really insufferable 21 year old who then like went from drinking like bad box wine at parties to like being really into, you know, the like you know Ponzi's like entry level Pinot Noir at the time was like thirty dollars, and so like suddenly you become <laughs> a, 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 a 
very insufferable connoisseur, uh, and that's really great at college parties, <laughs> as you might know. Uh, and so that was that was my intro into the business. And uh, after working a couple summers for Ponzi, uh, and then I graduated, uh, I wanted to get into it full time. And so then I uh, got another tasting room gig working at Sokol Blosser. Uh, I was really at that point after my experience at Ponzi, which was phenomenal, uh, I was really interested in working for a lot of these, um, the, the pioneering wineries, uh, the old guard. And so uh, with Ponzi's established in, the, in 1970 and uh, Sobosser in 71, uh, I, was, I just wanted to kind of learn from the old school. Um, but at the time, at the time, it was very much on the just the sales side of things. Like I think I was, I was interested in the technical aspects of winemaking, but I think that I um, had a lot of kind of negative um, self-image about the fact that like I am terrible at math and science. Like just basically like scooted by on like the bare minimum in college. Uh, very much like liberal arts, like language and uh, and fine arts oriented. And so I never, even though I think I I thought about making wine, I was not. I'd, I never uh, endeavored to like really get in on the production side. I worked harvest, so like they would have opportunities for staff to pitch in on like the sorting line and doing really like basic harvest tasks, but nothing beyond that. Um, and I, th I, that was basically my, my main gig for, for several years. So I, I worked for Sokol Bosser in total for like six years. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I met Jim. And then she met me. And <clears throat> we'll do this like in reverse chronological order. Yeah, probably. I know, yeah, because you're going to have to go back. <clears throat> she uh, and I met in the most, I think, probably uh, norm core, uh, yeah. sadly boring, I think. Like, we'll have to make up a better story. Like, we already said that we're going to tell people uh, in the future that we met in a knife fight or something <laughs> like that. Um, but we met at Whole Foods, which is yeah. really depressing. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Oof. But we met. That's probably my biggest regret in life. I know, yeah. Is we could have met somewhere better. I know. We should have. Yeah, we, we, um, we should have rehearsed this before yeah. you showed up here today. So but. we were, uh, I, I at the time was working for uh, one of the um, large distributors for wine that sells mostly um, kind of wine as. Com commodity. Commodity. Yeah. Widget wine, let's just say it. Um, and uh, I had scheduled a tasting demo at this Whole Foods. And so I was there pouring my uh, commodity wine, <laughs> yes. and uh, Jenny was there at the time uh, pouring wine for a Sokol Blosser, and the wine steward uh, for this particular Whole Foods um, maybe uh, was a bit of a stony baloney kind of guy, and he goofed and double booked <laughs> us. So uh, I showed up to pour my wine, there was already somebody there pouring wine, yeah. and I was fa fairly territorial. I was like, what are you doing here? And, um, is that how you remember? Because I thought that he was there first. Is like how I remember. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Whatever. Yeah. Either way, we met like, in a knife fight. Yeah, <laughs> um, the, the a knife fight in the Whole Foods. The yeah, yeah. It was wasn't rough. there, and um, it was like my day off. It was, I couldn't find someone else to to book the tasting, uh, and so because at that point I was uh, like managing the tasting room, and so I, it was my day off. I was not in a good mood to be there in the first place uh, because uh, it was this was uh, the summer of 2010. And 2010, um, as a lot of winemakers will tell you, is uh, kind of the summer that wasn't. Uh, it was, it was, in some ways, a very classically Oregon summer. It was the first year of January. Yeah, where you yeah. really just 
the sun never came out. It, it was kind of cloudy wow. and it was kind of... Um, it was beautiful. Yeah, it, well, it was, it was, it felt like probably April weather, but mm. through most of the summer. And this was the, it felt like this was the lone day in like mid-July that finally like the sun had come out. And so this was an afternoon tasting and the store was absolutely dead. It was the end of June, but it's fine. End of June, yeah, okay, end of June. So it was, uh, but the, the point being that I was there and you booked these like three hour demos. And so you're sta I'm standing in the middle of this Whole Foods wine section and there is hardly a soul in the store. The steward isn't there. And I am about at like 50 paces staring at Jim across the wine aisle because they didn't want to like let, they didn't want to say like, okay, like one of us goes home. They were like, well, we've, we've got two people pouring wine. Let's just have two people pouring wine. And so I was pouring wine on my end. He was pouring wine on his end and uh, vying for like all of the five customers that came in over mm -hmm. the three hour period. Uh, and I was again, like very cranky about it. It's true. And uh, <laughs> so ultimately, uh, even though the, the big company that I worked for uh, also sold the Sokol Blosser wines. I uh, went over to Jenny and I pretended that I uh, was unfamiliar uh, with their wines, which to be honest, um, uh, I probably wasn't as familiar as I should have been yeah, with and, the wines. And but. then this just reinforced my negative stereotype of this like kind of guy who works for a big distributor where I'm like, of course you sell our wines and you know nothing about our wines. Yes. Like, Do I you was, know about Franzia? Yeah, I was... Very indignant Pays the bills. and not interested in talking to him. So anyway, uh, we definitely did the opposite of hit it off, I think, but yeah. uh, I, I filed that in the mental folder of um, uh, somebody that I should try to uh, reconnect with. And, um, he gave me his business card, I gave her my business which was card. like a very not smooth move. <laughs> yeah. No, when you work for one of those big distributors, it's not really cool. So you don't really give out the business cards very often. It's not like a... It's, 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 uh, and I didn't have, it's kind of disappointing when you hand somebody that. Yeah. And I didn't have my own business cards on me. I had like no. free tasting room passes, mm. like for, to give out to people, uh, as they're tasting. And so I think I just, when we had first introduced ourselves, I said my name and that mm. was, I, and that was it. So, and then the story, uh, of our very norm core, <laughs> uh, relationship, the really depressing part. Yeah. So it started at Whole Foods and then, uh, the knife fight never happened, but I, I found her on Facebook and I messaged her and, um, yeah, that's actually yeah, maybe wow, that's, that's the depressing like part. The really, like, and so womp, womp, we like, got yeah. So we started we started seeing each other. Let's just fast forward through the boring portion. Oh yeah, so sure. You don't want to you don't want to fast forward. You like yeah. so when he had first reached out to me, I was like, who is this person? Because it, Jim Fisher, which is just mm. like a very generic name, yeah. and we had one mutual friend in common on Facebook, which was Cameron Winery. So like, <laughs> and so I was like, and it said he was from Rick Real, Oregon, and mm. so I was like. Sure. Maybe someone in mine, but I don't know. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to accept this friend request. Also, mm. because I didn't recognize him because his little profile mm. image at the time was... Well, I mean, I, I probably didn't think this through when I messaged her very well. Uh, my profile picture was, was in fact a picture of me, but it was me as a, a child. And to kind of set the stage, uh, my uh, parents ha have uh, had... Uh, a carpeted bathroom, which just makes no sense on any level. And the, the bathroom carpet was bright blue. Mm -hmm. And the wallpaper was like this kind of um, like cream and blue accented uh, like seashell print. And the pictures of me also in blue uh, uh, sweatpants top and sweatpants um, on, the, on the toilet. Um, 
Sweatshirt. 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 Sweatshirt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sweatpants soft? Sweatshirt. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, sweatshirt uh, and sweatpants uh, sitting on the, the toilet um, doing my best work, listening to uh, a Walkman that my parents obviously found so amusing at the time that they took a picture of. And I uh, used that as my Facebook profile picture. So when she uh, received a, a friend request from um, what looked like a, a seven year old going to the bathroom, <laughs> Um, in a carpeted bathroom, which I think that was probably the turnoff, because yeah, you're like, I don't trust anyone in a carpeted yeah. bathroom. Fair. Yeah. So she didn't respond, but uh, eventually, um, I think I, I. You yeah, you wore me down. I wore you down. That's yeah. really what it was. Yeah. And so um, we started seeing each other, and this is kind of the reverse chronological order of it. Uh, I guess we're starting more at the late end, and so then uh, I got fired from uh, said uh, distributor job, which um, at the time uh, was certainly uh, a bit of a blow. To my um, to my ego, um, but I uh, I used to uh, work in a uh, I used to work in Hollywood in a kind of tangentially related to uh, film production job, and one of my coworkers always said that in Hollywood they say that you should never hire anyone that hasn't been fired twice, and so I was like halfway there, so I figured <laughs> I'm on to something. Yeah. So, so yeah, the other firing will come later. Yeah, I fire myself every day. I'm my own <laughs> boss now, so that's great. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, uh, I was able to use kind of this, this moment of free time to start figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and so to backtrack now to kind of go to the beginning of the story and how this all kind of dovetails hopefully together is that when I was in high school, um, my family who had uh, uh, about 200 acres and it's not just my parents, um, it's my aunt and uncle and my grandparents that all lived on this 200 acres. and. Um, it kind of sounds like a, a family compound or, or commune when I, I say it like that, but it's like not uh, not like Branch Davidian. It's it's much more benign, and um, so uh, it's all zoned EFU. My dad had a job working for the federal government. My mom worked in retail for thirty years, and so they didn't have any time to farm the land actively. And they were leasing out the fields that they had to other farmers, but they wanted to do something. They'd always had an interest in gardening and farming. Uh, my dad is uh, certainly uh, obsessive about gardening. Um, for example, when I was in um, middle school, he planted one rose bush and he, uh, he uh, entered one of the cuttings from the rose in kind of one of these, uh, um, uh, I guess they have like rose cutting competitions, which was a, a new thing to me at that age. Like a county fair? Yeah, but it was at, the, it was at like, uh, um, it was like at the Lancaster Mall. So he went to the Lancaster mm -hmm. Mall and brought this rose cutting from his one rose bush and he won an award and he was hooked. That's so then, <laughs> so then like within a year we had something like 90 rose bushes in the yard and he worked in Portland. So my job all summer uh, was to take care of all these rose bushes, which I probably, I, I, not probably, I did a terrible job. It was not good. Resentfully. I was resentfully like, so deadheading them, watering them all summer long. And so my dad's always been into gardening and been kind of obsessive about things like that. So um, the, the, the land, uh, is zoned EFU, so we needed to do something and they wanted to do something. So um, as a family, we came up with this notion that we would plant a vineyard. And we selected uh, the uh, least fertile, most uh, shallow-soiled portion of the vineyard as kind of the test plot, thinking that if we could grow uh, grapevines on this uh, um, miserable, horrible tract of land, that we could grow grapevines on the rest of the property. And so we uh, set about as a family uh, during my senior year of high school, uh, collecting winter pruning wood from neighboring vineyards, um, cutting that apart into little lengths, potting them. We started our own nursery. So we had thousands and thousands of plants. And then the following winter, 
which was my freshman year of college, on winter break, we went and laid out the first block and planted that first vineyard portion, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. And at the time, I was incredibly resentful because I had no interest in wine. Um, it was cold, it was uh, December. Yeah. And I was like, I could just be inside playing video games, which is way more fun. So that was kind of my first impression of, of wine and grapes. And uh, this sucks. This sucks. <laughs> and. Um, and where was where? Oh, was sorry. This? Yeah. So this is in Recreal. In Recreal. Okay. So this is on the uh, kind of southwestern slope of the uh, Yola Hills. And um, for me, as a little kid growing up there, it was always kind of cool because it is uh, on this uplifted portion of the old ocean floor. And so when I was a little kid growing up there, uh, I'd always go dig in the dirt. And the soil the soil is very shallow, so I wouldn't have to dig very far. And you would find just uh, lots and lots of fossil clams everywhere. And um, that will, I think, ultimately become important later for how we decided to name our brand. Um, but uh, after college, uh, I did lots of different things. I, I lived in Japan for three years, teaching English. And then I moved to Los Angeles, and I lived there for two years. And then finally, um, as is the, the pillar of privilege uh, via nepotism, I got a job working in the wine industry um, for uh, the big distributor, unnamed mm -hmm. distributor. Because his older brother. My older brother was a brand manager there, and so um, I decided to move home, and get a job, and my brother got me a job there, and then we met at Whole Foods. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah. that's kind of how I got into yeah. the wine industry. Yeah. Yeah. We met at a knife fight. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm just going to give, I'm going to, since, since the, your one mutual friend was Cameron, I'm just going to give John Paul the credit. I for, really think so. Too. It's probably yeah, fair. Because it was like, yeah, that, that, that's like how I thought. I was like, well, okay. Like, that was, that was my first, like, I guess if he's good enough to be friends with the winery on Facebook, because that was like before, like, this is just sounds like ridiculous, but it was like before the age of like, you'd have your business pages and stuff. Mm. So like, if you were a business. First name Cameron, just, last name winery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thanks. Thanks to him. Yeah, and so uh, as soon as I got fired from the uh, big distributor job and pondering what I wanted to do with my life, um, I thought here is an opportunity. Um, by this point now, I, I had uh, really developed uh, an interest in wine. Um, and I knew that the program at Schmeckada was truly a world-class program. Um, even at that time, still, um, it was the Last year of the uh, original teachers was my first year there, and so it was great to have class with Al McDonald and hear him talk about Seven Springs. And then eventually, once he left, having classes with Jessica Cortell, and then uh, when Barney left, having classes with Jesse Sandruck, and all these people that I think uh, taught me so much about um, growing grapes and making wine. and. Um, I kind of really, I mean, we, how did we even decide that we were going to start making wine? I don't even remember. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like, such a, I think that the thought of it just developed so kind of randomly or organically. A lot of it was that, so at this point in 2011, the, his family's vineyard had become established and so it was produ producing fruit, but his dad, who is, as Jim has described, uh, like a very obsessive gardener and he's a really great farmer, he doesn't really have a lot of connections to people in the wine business. Mm. And so he was reaching this critical juncture where 
he had all of these very carefully farmed grapes, but no homes for them. Mm. And so we, I think, kind of hatched this like harebrained idea of like, well, because of our connections in the wine industry, because of all the people I had met um, working in the valley and meeting other people who work for wineries, uh, we had this thought of like, how can we connect, like use those connections to uh, get some of those winemakers whom we really like and respect to work with the fruit, like, or just anyone who we felt like that would give the, the grapes, I think the kind of respect that we felt like that they, that it deserved. Mm. Um, and at that point, Jim's dad had been selling grapes to other other wineries, but they were typically going into like Willamette Valley level blends. And so there was nothing that really showcased mm -hmm. the vineyard mm -hmm. in total. And um, it, because it didn't really have a, a name or anything that would make anyone want to make a single vineyard wine out of this, we realized that the only way to, to accomplish that was to do it ourselves, which was really the the hubris of that is astounding mm -hmm. <laughs> like that at that point yeah we'll just I, make a wine like, we'll, we'll just make a wine that is so out. good that people, that want people are gonna say yeah this vineyard is really good yeah. and i'm gonna want to buy grapes from it and looking back on that How just hard it illogical <laughs> <laughs> like a chain of events but yeah so that that was how it started so we thought okay we're going to make like a business card in a bottle mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. so we're gonna take a, a ton of fruit uh, that his dad is effectively going to like gift us for the like for like it's almost like a marketing expense so mm -hmm. we would take that ton of fruit and then we would find a place to make the wine and so uh, we worked with a small uh, winery not too far from his parents place in uh, the that basically was stewarded that initial vintage for us so uh, it was like a trade that we would give the winemaker the grapes and then he would make the wine and jim could get hands-on experience mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the the production side of things yeah and then and then that was coupled with at the same time starting uh Schmeckata, Schmeckata. uh at that same time so i started at Schmeckata in 2011 mm -hmm. and, and and 2011 was an auspicious vintage mm, to, to start yeah. wine <laughs> in Oregon, which but in some ways i feel like that it uh it reinforced everything that I had learned in uh, tasting wine and gleaning information from all of these older wineries uh, was that it, even though there were elements of it that were very unusual, that 2011 in a weird way uh, had, so many, had so many characteristics about it that are more true to the prior 30 plus years of, of Oregon history at that point than what we've seen in the last 10. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so in that way, like, I feel like it, it reinforced for me that this is like, like I wanna be part of that chronology of, of winemaking. Mm. That I wanna make wine that I feel like is, is representative of like Oregon climate. And 2011 was- You're a, a glutton for punishment. Yeah, mm. I mean, I, you met at a knife fight, so yeah. I figure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it was definitely uh, an interesting start because I'm I mm. thinking, when did we harvest our, our ton in 2011? Mm, October 29th. Yeah, so <laughs> you don't see those late October harvests 
anymore. Yeah. I mean, if it goes into early October now, that mm -hmm. that feels pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah, it was that was the, the start of it, and the wine um, didn't suck. And we also realized that on the face of it, like one ton, you're like one ton, like this mm. makes like 50-ish cases, like that's no big deal. But with the idea that then, again, the, the just illogic of it, that we were going to make 50 cases of wine and that this was gonna be our like business card and we would give it to people, well, I don't know. I know like two people and you're one of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm the other one. Yeah. So I don't know who I'm right. gonna give this yeah. to. Yeah, so yeah. We, like suddenly we realized that um, like we had become way in over our heads yeah. immediately. Immediately. And so we, totally. And so we thought, okay, well, now I guess we gotta sell it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that was kind of then led us to go from this business card idea, which I think felt okay and novel-ish mm -hmm. to then a more serious uh, approach to it, which realizing that we've already laid uh, the groundwork to have something that we can sell. And what's uh, m a more effective way to get the name of the vineyard out there than to uh, put it on a package and, and get it into consumers' hands? And um, I think we, uh, especially for me, working on the distributor side, uh, moving commodity wine, and then Jenny working for these uh, kind of pioneering family wineries here in the Willamette Valley. Um, we come up with some fairly, uh, I think, clear goals of what we wanted to accomplish with the brand. Uh, we had realized that uh, we exist at this really uh, wonderful time in the Willamette Valley where across the board uh, wine quality is higher than ever. Um, there really are uh, very few of those uh, kind of more homespun experiences of going to um, a barn and trying wine and it's a real roll of the dice of whether or not uh, you might get botulism from it. <laughs> chemically is not possible, yeah, just okay. to clarify. Yeah. But, um, you know, so across the board wine is great, uh, but it struck us that, so if we can assume that right away, if people are making really high quality Pinot Noir, uh, how can we hope to compete? What can we do? What, what can we, uh, how, how can we stand out? And so we realized that uh, branding, marketing, and uh, uh, conveying a story in a succinct uh, 144 character and or image manner was going to be a huge portion of how we would try to stand out in the marketplace. And to wit, we got really lucky that uh, one of our friends uh, runs a uh, local design firm, local as in Portland. and. Uh, we were able to, uh, uh, we were fortunate to be able to work with them on our, our first ever label design and they've been with us ever since. Yeah, and, and it helped us through the, the really uh, painfully iterative process of coming up with a name because uh, you don't, I guess, I mean, I, I just think that probably most normal people don't realize that like, you're like, how to come up with a cool name yeah. is impossible because if it's cool, someone else is already using Definitely. it. So I think we probably, I mean, like, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that we went through probably like 300 different, like, just, just brainstorming all these different things. And, uh, and then because of the, the time and because we had run out of ideas, uh, we landed on the, the kind of now, uh, like dreaded, uh, ampersand, ampersand name, name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, which, uh, we joke that I can't wait till somebody sues us and we can like change our name to like knife fight winery or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know. And so I think it's that coming. Yeah. And, and so we, at the very least, we, uh, tried to make it, uh, 
come back to the vineyard itself. I mean, we, we knew that there were certain things that we did not want. Um, we did not want to use um, French words. I don't know French, mm. he doesn't know French. Only the swear words. <laughs> Only the good stuff, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's, and so the idea of calling it a domain or a chateau mm. or something uh, just felt really like silly and grandiose or like a, a seller's, like we don't, we don't own a, a seller. Yeah. We don't own anything really. No, I mean, I guess like by legal definition, we are a winery, but like it, I feel- We've never owned our own space to make wine in. Yeah. I'm, I am a millennial. I don't own anything. Like I, we live rent. in a studio apartment. I, yeah, like we rent. So, so it's I drive a, a subcompact car. Yeah. So I think that there, like, it's old. I we wanted. We knew that the name had to be. I think reflective of, in some way, just uh, the the basics, which was mm. that uh, the vineyard itself is planted on an. A, basically an ancient uh, piece of the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why well, I came back to that where I would, as a child, dig yeah. up fossils. Yeah, that and happened. so that, that was, and I think that that was sort of the, the inspiration that we knew that if the, the core of the, the mission of making this wine was to showcase the, the vineyard itself, then the name should be reflective mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. so the, the fossil part is that uh, basically it's an, uh, the, the piece of uh, property that his parents planted on, or that he and his parents planted on, um, is mm. an uplifted piece of the, the ocean floor from like the Oligocene. I mean, it's like 15 million year old plus, uh, and yet still has like little recognizable fossil mm-hmm. like clams and- I found one scallop one time. Yeah. yeah. Five elves. Though. Five elves, yeah. definitely. Um, and then the fawn portion of it is uh, a little more, I don't know, a little funnier. Where it's the the, the vineyard itself like is like funny, haha. I don't know. It's 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 it because it's it's a weird like um, a give and a take type relationship mm. with the fawn portion of it. So the vineyard is is planted and uh, and surrounding it on three sides is old oak forest. So of the 200 acres of the property that your parents own, mm. uh, a very small proportion of it had historically been cleared for farming mm-hmm. use. But the majority of it is- Old growth oak forest. Well, yeah, and now, and it's, it's interesting because now I think there's a lot more awareness of the fact that these old oak forests are kind of an, an endangered ecology within the Willamette Valley because so much of it has been cleared uh, over the past, you know, now 150 years uh, for for agriculture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, so having that is kind of special and it adds to this really interesting kind of character and biodiversity of the site. Uh, but it's also um, because of the sort of rarity of these um, kind of environments. Now you have this really intense, constant, like kind of unusual concentration of uh, wildlife like deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the deer, uh, we have, oh dear. A, we have a love-hate relationship with the deer. The love is that they're really cute, and fair is fair, they were there first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the bad news, of course, is that they also uh, are the kind of the antagonists in the story of vineyards where they like to break their way into the vineyards mm. uh, and eat the little growing tips on the, mm. the I vines. Don't, I don't know if you've uh, seen uh, the movie based on the book Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Um, wow! But uh, there are a little, a little indie hit. I remember. It yeah. was. Uh, we it fight was, about it because Jurassic was, Park is yeah. one of my favorite films, and he's yeah. like, the book was better. Like, yeah. 
That's true. Yeah, I, I do that. I'm that person. Yeah, you are that person. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I don't like it. But the, the, the deer are very, they're very smart because they have a lot of like, they're, they're intelligent in their, the ways that they can survive. They're just like the velociraptors. They just walk around the perimeter of the fence and always uh, look for weaknesses. <laughs> and it's not, uh, you know, for, for malicious intent. Uh, usually they want to break into the vineyard uh, in late spring to uh, have their young. And so usually a pregnant mother will break in and uh, have her uh, fawns and I don't know if deer are like salmon but I want to think that they are and so then the following year when those deer have matured they like to do the same thing break back into the vineyard have their young and so on and so forth um, come back to spawn yeah and in the meantime when they're there they just go nuts and so they, they do tremendous amounts of damage in the vineyard and so my dad is constantly I think like the majority of his job uh, beyond just growing grapes is just fence repair yes. and um, chasing deer out. chasing deer yeah. a lot of chasing you if you ever I mean I've never uh, been misguided enough to think that I was cool but if you ever really want to feel like a fool um, like go uh, try to chase a, a deer out of a vineyard because you're like waving your arms over your head screaming and like honking a horn in a car and yeah. it's it's a it's a sad sight it's, and the deer is just giving you that the deer look, is just like, looking at you like ah uh, yeah no. No, no. You cannot sit at my lunch table. Yeah. And so. But then at the flip side, it's like, I, we would never, like, once you've seen, like, a baby fawn, like, it's the most adorable thing you've ever seen. It's a puppy with, with on stilts, like, basically. Mm. I think and, of it's like a kitty on stilts. Or a kitty on stilts, yeah. Like, it's, and they're, they're amazingly adorable. So you could never, ever dream of wanting to, like, harm them. And mm. so it's this, you just, it's a defensive mode of, like, just repairing the fences and kind of just dealing with the fact that this is, this is vineyard life. Uh, so, yeah, fossil and fawn, that's the name. I don't know if that even answers why wine, but <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, that was the last. That was a long. That was a long time. Yeah. Why? Why wine? Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, that's fossil and fun. Tell, tell me about you, you. You mentioned that like you, you kind of realized right away you're you're kind of in over your head with what you initially thought you were doing in the wine business or in the, in the creating wine business at least. So tell me about once you've realized that, that you have to sell your wine, you have to create a brand. Tell me about those steps of uh, the creating the labels, uh, mm -hmm. deciding on your mission, deciding on how you're going to sell your wine and, and make your wine, and where and how. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of it was just born out of necessity of like, well, we got to find a space, we've got to do you know it's it you just you have to check all the the boxes on at least the production side of things i think for me um it's kind of uh i think when i was uh younger when i was in high school um i was in a band and the band was terrible we were really bad but we would play like the local vfw and things like that and i thought it was pretty cool and i realized that the only reason i wanted to be in a band uh was clearly not for music because i was terrible at that but i just wanted to have a merch table <laughs> i just wanted to have like stickers and t-shirts and like uh, some kind of takeaway and uh, so I think that I've always been interested in design and I've been interested in uh, branding I wanted to like you know uh, maybe like when I was doodling in class I'd be like drawing my name in bubble letters I wanted like I wanted that to look cool or something so I've been I've always been thinking about that and I think that whenever I, I'm driving and I catch myself uh, uh, I'm thinking about winemaking all the time but I'm also frequently thinking about branding and thinking about uh, designs and posters and labels and things cool like things. that that I want to do and which is sort of ironic because I have the art degree but I feel like that my the, my interests in art are definitely more of the like I, I'm not good at graphic design uh, and like I am bad at 
doing art on the computer. And so that, I think I always knew from the get go that we would need like outside help for that aspect of it. Yes. Uh, that I didn't, I just like wither the thought of like dr like drawing our own labels. Although I'm we're actually I'm going to try to do that this year, which yes. seems like a bad idea. But uh, but I just think that so we we knew that we wanted like outside help, and we did have this friend um, that um, like I had met like years ago in a completely like different job, and she and uh, her business partner had launched this design studio and when she heard that we were making wine and we were going to make it commercially like i think that we it was just like obvious like mm -hmm. of course we're going to work with you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um which was just really fantastically uh, fortuitous for us because they're really good at it uh and they also at that point were working with people who um like they were doing branding for businesses that are just far larger and have way more budget than we could ever conceive of. Mm. Um, so they were also down with giving us like the bro deal. So they were like, yeah, of course, like we want experience. Like we had never made a wine label before. And so we, we've now learned over time that that's like a very common thing that if you're like a design firm, that you would kind of do these things like on spec to build out your portfolio, mm -hmm. which just felt just so, uh, at first it felt very wrong to me because as uh, someone who is trained like in the arts, like something that you're just repeatedly uh, told is to like really try to fight for your own like value and to not just give it away for free. <laughs> and you know, how many times does an artist get approached, you know, for exposure? is ridiculous and so but in this case they were really like yeah like we'll we'll charge you some money but really we want to do this because we like you and we want to help establish this and i think and it was it they had a better longer reaching vision than we even had at the time where they knew that by kind of getting the ball rolling for us that we would then be their like customers mm -hmm. for life you know the, mm -hmm. and that's still like now um even though we uh have used the opportunity of winemaking to work with other artists that we are excited about like that they still like factory north the the design firm like still designs like our core labels mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and other things yeah and uh i'm kind of going back to the idea of being in over our heads every day <laughs> every like yeah you, sometimes not as much anymore which is good um but uh definitely at the start i think i had a, a job interview for a wine job and the interviewer asked me uh what our what what our case production was like and so when we first started in 2011 we made um 53 cases and uh basically every year since then we've uh, done our best to double production and so this year now we're up to about so for 2019 we're up to about 2000 cases and uh, at that time, when I had this interview for a wine job, uh, the interviewer asked me, uh, well, how many cases do you make? And I said, at that time, it was, uh, we were looking to make uh, somewhere like around 300 to 400 at that particular time. And uh, they responded by saying, well, you know, I mean, there's 356 days in a year. Uh, do you think that you can sell a case a day? And it was an interesting thought because I'd never really considered it in such a, uh, um, uh, as Jenny's mentioned, she is not good at math. Not, yeah, you're fine with that. I don't. I yeah, don't mean to. I don't mean assessment. to. No, yeah, you're not. Drive over you in the bus. Thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, but I am also not great at math, and so when you have somebody uh, <laughs> the uh, gravity of it to point like, out to you, like selling a case a day, and so uh, because at that time it was uh, basically just me driving around in my aforementioned subcompact car, 
in Portland or in other places, knocking on doors, cold calling people, lukewarm calling people, uh, but never, never warm calling, never anyone saying, please come in usually. It's just, you know, uh, that, that kind of um, uh, facing rejection constantly, which everyone loves. And so, uh, yeah, I guess I was daunted by the fact, feeling right then, like, do I think I could sell a case of wine every day? And, and um, feeling uh, a little uneasy, of course, and then he was like, oh yeah, no problem, yeah, case a day, easy, no problem, easy. But uh, in truth, I, 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 it resonated with me because I realized uh, that uh, on our own, with me only knowing two people and Jenny being one of them and me being the other, that it was gonna be hard for me to, to sell that much wine. So we, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. I, I guess I feel like in some ways we really lucked into a lot of things. Yes. Like, More than anything. Oh just, yeah, it's just, just luck. Dumb, just dumb all luck. luck. Like the first like the first vintage, like once we released the, the 2011 after it had been bottled and we had settled on the labeling and everything, um, we got like a really lucky break where there was a wine shop in Portland that picked it up for like one of their like newsletters and it was right around uh, the, the holidays. holidays. Yeah, it was December. They put in their December newsletter. We had never really sold a bottle of wine to like hardly any other person at that point. And they ended up buying like- Two thirds of it. Yeah. It right was, away. Yeah, it was, like, so, we, cases. So, so we sold two thirds of our first release in one go, which felt lucky yeah, for sure. Yeah, that the, they had taken a chance on us. But I think also a lot of it is that um, we're like, you can, we're not making wine for, and we're not designing our brand for basically anyone but ourselves. And that sounds, mm. it, it just, it, that, that's like, I feel like that the part where this really, even though wine is not true art in the way that uh, just like painting paintings is, but it it is in the way that we approach it and that like, even though we're making it at a commercial volume, I'm not, um, I'm not thinking like, oh, well, I have to make this wine this way or I have to design the label this way to appeal to a specific person. Mm. It's incredibly selfish process where oh, we just yeah. do it to, to basically just please ourselves. And I, I, I'm almost inspired by trying to make wines that I hope people don't like. <laughs> And it's weird because somehow really, we still maybe. always find the audience. Yeah. And I think that that was really, and that was maybe a lesson in that because our first label um, was we, the the kind of initial concept of it felt very. It was a label that, without fail, um, it was just it was like a, um, a like an age test, <laughs> like where like sure. you would show it to if it was like someone under the age of forty, they were like, this is super rad. If you showed it to anyone who's like our parents' age, mm. they would immediately be like, "I don't get it," or "This is where's weird, the gold foil?" Like yeah, like because it was uh, the it was dark, it was black and white, and it was like a, a collage of like uh, a sunken of, ghost a, ship. Yeah, it was like, and it had, uh, and this was a little bit like kind of a winky thing of that. We we did design the label in a way like uh, like a burgundy label in the sense that the um, appellation and the variety, which I guess like not really truly Burgundian, but in the sense that it had a more uh, French wine label style and that front and center is the like where it's from and what it is. Mm -hmm. And then our name was quite small, quite small, tiny print at the bottom. Mm. And over and over we would effectively old people would be mm. like, I don't, why is your name so small? Sure. And I don't understand because for, from our perspective, uh, especially having 
now experience on the sales side of things, either commodity wines or um, nice Oregon wines, was that um, people, if you're in the grocery store and you maybe don't know a lot about wine, you do, like, the name Poisson Pond is not going to mean anything to you. Uh, what is going to mean something to you is that this is an Oregon Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And so why not make that information really front and center? Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I just feel like that that's, uh, we've always kind of gone in a weird direction that way. And, and true to it, like, we always find people who are, are down with it. Mm. Yeah, it's just kind of, I think we're lazy in terms of marketing, which is uh, when I hear uh, people who work for, for uh, wineries where they are the winemaker by job title and they are tasked with making wine for somebody else's palate, uh, I, I have tons of respect for that because you can never do it. I couldn't do that and I would not want to do that. Um, uh, so the laziness is just that we make wine for ourselves and we design wine for ourselves and, and hope that there are other uh, woebegone individuals enough like us that might take a are, chance on are it. Into it. Yeah. And I think that that has also fueled a lot of the winemaking direction for us is that over time it really has um, emboldened us to be more experimental uh, because of this, kind of like in a weird mm. way, like how much can we get away with? <laughs> mm. and. So, like last year, we made a skin contact Gewurztraminer. Which is an idea we stole. Yeah, granted, yeah. There's nothing in my Nothing new under the sun. Yeah, no, the, yeah it's, it's everything. It's, it's good and good artists steal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, yeah, so we, we did a skin contact Gewurztraminer, which, first of all, like Gewurztraminer, not a super popular wine uh, in in the market. It's coming back. It's, come, it's, it's coming back. We're, we're, we're part of that comeback. Uh, yeah. And then to make it skin contact, but then not only that, but to rest it on its skins for over eight months. Yeah, like and so in that way, we thought, what the hell, you know? Like yeah. we're gonna do this because it's a challenge to ourselves, sure. and we thought it would be fun. And probably a little funny. And why and not? Why not? And no one, and no one anymore. I mean, it's so hard that, especially in the domestic market, no one likes Gewurztraminer. I mean, the, the amount of hate that people have for it is, is almost. It's it's not almost. It is visceral and it's unusual. It's where people uh, look at you and they, they they just have these terrible assumptions about it. Yeah, they're like almost offended that you would have made it and brought it into like their mm -hmm. sphere. Uh, and but then, so we made this wine thinking like. Yeah, well, we we didn't make that much of it. No. Uh, well, I can, like it's funny because like w how much we made was basically like for us in 2011 would have been most of the production. More than. Yeah, we that's made, right because it was a little. Over we made 50. seven. We made 73 cases of it. Yeah, so. and so it's uh, we. Th so I think you know now we have a little bit because we're a little bigger and we have a little bit more name recognition. We can kind of get away with this, but we thought. <laughs> but even then, we're like we, do? we might be hung with these 70 cases of Gewurztraminer, and who knows. Uh, and we like it was basically like allocated mm -hmm. <laughs> like people tasted yeah. it, we which we were thrilled about, but also uh, like befuddled, I suppose. So yeah, so then this year we doubled production on it, and it'll probably uh, sell out quickly as yeah. well again. So I, it's I like expect. built on a dare. That's really our uh, part of the philosophy, I guess. Yeah, and I think that you. So we uh, created a motto, which we should probably put on our walls to inspire know, us to constantly, you know, because I think of other wineries that have like really like um, uh, meaningful mottos on the wall. 
um, like uh, at EIO, I think I haven't been, but I've just seen it on Instagram, but it says everything matters. I think that's what that one says. And then yeah. at Walter Scott, it has, uh, I don't know, like, he has like uh, a quote or something. Like it's Henri Jair or something like that. I probably even said that wrong. Yeah. On the wall. It's some, some like, of the very or like. You set yourself like a kind of a like company mission, like yeah. where you're like, I'm one, you know, we're going to make world class wines with a sense of place that but are. That just didn't feel like us. Because it's also, it's like, it's kind of like a duh. Like, who isn't trying yeah. to make, I mean, like good wine? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, maybe that's. Good is the enemy of great, Jenny. Yeah. Or also maybe. If you're that, not getting better, you're getting worse. Yeah. Maybe also our motto should be, or like Hang maybe on. like the, the like oblique strategy should be to try to make bad wine. There <laughs> like, we are. So. Uh, we, our motto uh, just became Get Weird, Suck Less, which uh, just is the uh, inspiration for everything that we do in the sense that um, we have yet to find uh, wines that we made that ended up that way by accident or even wines that we made strange on purpose yet. We have yet to find that outer wall of uh, people who are opposed to that or turned yeah. off by that. I mean, not, not to say that the wines that we make are for everyone. In fact, we don't want them to be for everyone. Um, right, but and then and then the suck less is based on this notion that now we've been uh, releasing wine for eleven years, and we uh, have one chance a year to make wine. And I think about any job that I've ever had, and I've had some weird jobs, and how many days of doing that job it takes before you feel competent or confident even right, years, in doing years, that job. Really, I mean, it, and the amount of screw up it takes. And now imagine if you only got to do that job essentially one time a year. Um, for us, it's, it's been that kind of ongoing mission of every year, trying desperately to get better and uh, stewing on um, the mistakes. Because um, you have such a, it's such a long feedback loop, so you have so much time to think about yeah. everything that you wish you had done differently or mm -hmm. this and that, and it's and so you try not to beat yourself up too much, but also then try to. Oh, I beat myself up hard. Well, yeah, you do, but it's then, but how to refine the process in a meaningful way instead of just saying like, oh, I should have screwed that up, or I wish yeah. I had done this differently. It's like, well, don't just wish, like then try to do it. Like yeah. so, the suck less is that you're like it's it's the progress, not perfection. You're never, it you can't. Like, who can become a master winemaker if you're making, even if uh, some of the oldest winemakers are, ma you know, have maybe 40 vintages under their belts. Uh, and so it's this idea of like, you're still going to make mistakes and that just has to, you just have to accept that that's part of the process, but just maybe try not to make the same mistake mm -hmm. over and over again. Yeah. I wouldn't even say same mistake twice. Maybe st don't make the same mistake three times. Yeah, yeah. probably. Probably three times. Yeah, three times. Yeah. And we give yourself a little a wide berth there. Also, you know, we we um, we haven't had the good fortune that uh, uh, some of the other winemakers you've interviewed that have had uh, mentors uh, that have worked with uh, you know somebody like the people that we look up to, you know, the Myron Redfords, the David Letts, those kind of people. You know, we've never had anyone like that in our lives, and so um, we we've learned by reading and by going to school and by doing and making lots of mistakes. Yeah. And so uh, probably the mistakes are our mentors. I don't know, yeah. that's a sad thing. And, so, and I think also having I a, look up to a community of winemakers who are also kind of in our same, like I'm, I'm gonna say young winemakers, but I don't mean the age of the winemakers, but just where they're at in their careers. Mm -hmm. They're like people who similarly maybe have been making wine for like a dozen years and we're kind of at, so it's like having the combination of like the, 
the, the old guard to like look up to and learn about and experience, but you're sort of experiencing it like in absentia. Like I don't have some, I don't, I don't have, yeah, the mentor who's like in the cellar with me, um, but I can learn, still like learn from them. But then we also have like our cohort of people who are making wine uh, kind of in the same, in the same feel. That, that is definitely, uh, yeah, one of the benefits for uh, how we have started our business, which is, uh, I think, now fairly common across the country, the model of uh, renting space mm -hmm. and having cooperative spaces. And um, that's, that's essentially how we've had to run our business because we don't have the capital to buy uh, a space or buy equipment, especially not starting out. And as our business has grown, we've been able to buy more things, but it's been almost entirely organic in the sense of, um, you know, we don't have a, a angel investor. Right. We have to, like we that. had to earn, you have to earn the money in order to spend the money. It's not like that. And in fact, I, this was a, a big year for us because this is the first year that we even took out a very small commercial loan, like, which is yeah. a big step for, for us, uh, to build this. I mean, the, the one thing that we did have an, an enormous privilege in getting us started was the fact that we had Jim's family Correct. Uh, to then kind of um, at first loan us the grapes or, or gift us the grapes and then it became a really like flexible loan process where um, we could pay Jim's dad for the fruit on, a, on very, very um, favorable terms for mm. ourselves and not so much for him. I mean, it took us uh, eight years to become profitable. Yeah. So that, that was pretty tough. And, yeah. um, you know, I think that that learning process though, uh, of not having our own space has been hugely instrumental because we haven't had that real mentor, but what we've had is a lot of other people surrounding us uh, doing cool things, making mistakes. And, uh, then that has allowed us to, um, uh, borrow from that mm -hmm. and learn from that as well. So, um, we, for example, um, have found a love of Gewürztraminer, which is something that we've learned entirely from our friend, the Maloofs. And mm -hmm. uh, we love Chardonnay. And um, it's not necessarily we've worked at any place that's made a lot of Chardonnay, but um, I always think of like um, the Irish Chardonnays, for example, mm -hmm. of being kind of a hallmark for us of something that's been inspiring us to try to find uh, specifically older clonal material for making Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Um, we love Pinot Noir because we're both from Oregon and we think that Oregon grows um, some of the best Pinot Noir in the world. And so as much as we're also still making uh, fun, goofy, uh, kooky wines, we're also still really interested in making uh, classical terroir-driven expressions of uh, Chardonnay, yeah, where Pinot we're Noir, from. things that express where we're from. And even something like uh eight-month skin fermented Gewürztraminer, maybe it doesn't, it's not classical per se, but like it's still a wine of terroir for like, mm. in terms of like, you know, we're, uh, we're making this to express where it is from. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, and last year we were working with a vineyard called Sunnyside Vineyard, and I think that the wine tastes like that vineyard. Uh, this year we're working with uh, different fruit, and I think that it'll taste different, even oh, though 100%. the process is, is, I mean, some of that's vintage, but some mm -hmm. of it's the, the places themselves. So even if we are making these kind of like kooky wines, as you say, like, I think that we're still, it's like 
we're still serious about the winemaking process, even if we are having fun while doing mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you mentioned uh, about a decade or, or a dozen mm -hmm. years or so in the, in the industry, and, and you talked about you especially working with the pioneer families, mm -hmm. and, and so you, you come into the industry, and I'm curious if there's an impulse to when you're talking about the, that experimentation, is there an impulse to kind of push against that classic? Is, is there an impulse to push against like the pioneering? I mean, I style? feel like the pioneering style, like in, in some ways, like the, I mean, the pioneering style, if you will, was like the the true innovation mm -hmm. uh, because you have people coming to a place where there was no history of or at least a, a deep history of viticultural practice. I mean, there definitely were wineries and vineyards here um, for, you know, those planted mm -hmm. in the past hundred years. But I think that, so you had the, like you had someone like, uh, we will probably mention David Lett many times uh, throughout this, cause he's like a big kind of a, a personal, like touchstone for us in terms of like someone who was the, the greatest innovator that came and, and did something kind of out of nothing. And also I think had um, a very artistic heart in the way that he approached winemaking that, you know, someone who did all these kind of weird, you know, like weird and experimental things in his own right. Uh, but then also to me, like the true artist where he made wines that he thought were really good and then never released them. <laughs> like, and I think like to me that's like, like I, I feel like that there's like, I, I, I wish I were in some ways like a, a legitimate enough like artist at winemaking to like do stuff like that. Like I just like, it's, to me that's really cool and, and enviable. And I think that so, and the other um, kind of early winemakers doing kind of similar things where they were just kind of doing it off the cuff. Um, it's, but I think that it's like in a way, uh, we're maybe part of like the third wave. So then you had, you had these early kind of scrappy beginners at it. And then from there you had the second wave kind of come into like the, from like the nineties through like the two thousands that really established Oregon as like a serious serious wine region and to, i mean i think that they're i don't know if i want to say that we're like bucking like against that but i think that it, it started to birth more of like the prestige wineries where you had um interest from other places so you had wineries that were or people would establish wineries like in california or washington or france that then came to oregon and help to give it this like sense of legitimacy where I guess I, I don't feel like that it ever maybe ever needed that but I'm also get to privilege or I'm privileged to just get to enjoy what came from from all of that groundwork laying mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think that it is hard where you have a region that is still relatively young in the scheme of winemaking um, compared to like a place like France and you get constant uh, comparisons you mm -hmm. know like Oregon is new world, but we make Burgundian style wines. What the hell does that mean? Like it doesn't like we make Oregon wines. Like we don't make Burgundian wines. And, and I've had Burgundy that tastes really like 
you know, rich and tannic or fruity, or, and then I've had ones that are like light and ethereal. And so it's like, what, like, it's not like this weird thing of like, it's this monumentality of like, it, this means something I, I really, I, I find to be really, it's not even a conversation that I'm interested in because I don't feel like you need to legitimize yourself by comparison. By, by comparison. Mm -hmm. I think that it stands on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, this is <clears throat> vaguely tangential, but it ties in, and I promise I'll get back to it. But, um, so the, uh, Jenny and I spent a lot of time watching YouTube, and so... <clears throat> That's a sad admission. Yeah, I hope this dates well. And so, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so the Liquor Control Board of Ontario has this collection of videos where they obviously are the world's largest buyer of alcohol, so they have huge amounts of money to spend on having this guy travel the world and go to wine regions and talk about what happens there. Charming as heck. Yeah, he's, it's a weird thing because it was charming, like sure. it was like, but it was filmed in but like the visit, mid 2000s, so visits, and it looks like it's like from the 80s. <laughs> so yeah, so he visits all these wine regions. He finally makes it to the U.S. Um, you know, uh, when he's in Europe, like he's very specific, focuses on like he has like three videos alone just on the villages of uh, Burgundy, which is great. But he gets to Oregon, and we don't even get our own video. It's Oregon and Washington Oof. lumped together. California at least got its own video. Fair enough, mm -hmm. but. It's just interesting watching, because uh, they were all filmed roughly around the same time, what uh, wineries were like in California in uh, the early 2000s, or late 90s? I think it was early 2000s. Maybe early 2000s. Um, and what wineries were like in Washington in the early 2000s. And it's just a very, very different cultural world that, uh, as, a, as a native Oregonian, like watching the, the people from Oregon that represent Oregon. So it's uh, David Lett, David Adelsheim, and Dick Erath that are interviewed. Yes, yeah. And then also Myron has his own standalone portion. And you watch Fantastic. that, and you're just like, these are the people I want to be like. Like, it's because cool. All like, of the California and Washington ones, by, well, maybe not all of them, but mostly it was like their. It wasn't even like, the proprietor, it was like like assistant head of like like subcontinental marketing for <laughs> Eastern like Washington. It's like it was just like a really long right. title. Or, it was yeah, like, who is they this had person? Like, the VP of sales or like they're yeah. like the brand ambassador or something. It was like, it, it, like, it really gave you this feel of. Um, that wine is marketing. Yeah, or like in the very kind of like corporatized yes. like wine even if these were like very like fine wines and they're you know great wineries whatever but it's it still had this weird like sense of removal versus then he has this round table with like all all like the old dogs like and it was super david cool. david and dick yeah and then and then and myron, myron on his yeah. own because he he probably didn't want to sit down with the rest of them or something i don't know <laughs> but it was incredible like you know and you watch this and you're like that it all everyone has heart and to me, that was inspiring. So I don't necessarily feel like that's a thing to buck against. I feel like that's a thing that right. I watch and I'm inspired by. That being said, as we talk about kind of how things uh, uh, have progressed in Oregon, how uh, Pinot Noir is at a you know, higher level than it's ever been, uh, winemaking is at a higher level than it's ever been, but certainly one of the things that's been important to help legitimize Oregon, but uh, is kind of the prestige wine movement of the, the people who have, you know, a Tuscan villa in Dundee or something like that where you're like, and it's, they, it's a different kind of thing, and it's been great, honestly, to elevate the brand of Oregon, even if the thing that they're making is not something that I find like personally enjoyable. Personally enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, it's and but I do think that it has caused this interesting, um, like. Like but it's not it's like, not the LCBO people no. that have heart, you know. It's no. not that to me either. But I see. But I do think that a lot of that has added towards this really interesting moment right now, where um, we 
because of this singular push on Pinot Noir and being this uh, Pinot Noir wine region and we're so Burgundian and all of this thing. Drink that, Oregon, think Pinot. Or wasn't right? that Yeah, and it's, or it's, like, close. But it's close to that. Yeah, and it's like, and this idea of like the then then you have all, it, it creates this weird, these market conditions where you have a, a lot of, there's a, like a lot of expensive Oregon Pinot Noir. Like at the point where we were coming into uh, our first commercial release in 2011, like we- Considering price point was huge. Yeah, the, it was, and like the end, like we would say like basically if you could land a Pinot Noir on the shelf for under 30 bucks, like you were like in a really competitive space. Because the last thing the world needs is another $35 Oregon Pinot, yeah, regardless of how good it, it is. it feels like that that was really kind of like the, that, the entry mark. I mean, like, so you had like, you would have these maybe slightly, um, more bottom shelf like Pinot Noirs that were being produced by like I mean I think they're good wines but you'd have like the like A to Z who was like their mission was like they want or or like Erath um, by the the two thousand the late two thousands where um, it was that Dick had sold it and so mm -hmm. Chateau Saint Michel and like this idea of like they were making the kind of your more everyday Pinots that were in that like sub twenty five mm -hmm. zone but basically everyone else if you're like even if you're an unknown your entry-level pinot noir starts at thirty dollars at like the, the basement yeah and so and so we were for like, us that was uh that was not tenable i mean that's just it doesn't make sense it's because again as we, i don't have any money we're lazy marketers we're making <laughs> like, wine for ourselves and so like i, I and don't i don't have it like yeah. and you can't like and it's just and i also just didn't at the time feel like i could comfortably like make the sales case that like our wine should be worth that much like mm. it because like the wines are good but we were still learning and i think that they were like i just don't think they're 30 dollar wines and even like today it's still our pinot noir Basically, if like depending on where you live, yeah, depending on where you live, it still hits like thirty or under. Thirty or under, yeah. In yeah. Oregon, it should hit the shelf at like twenty-seven. Twenty-seven, around yeah, there. yeah. Uh, and so, this idea of like and and but it's interesting that you had all these baseline thirty thirty-five dollar Pinot Noirs, and so it created these weird market conditions where then if you're a farmer and you want to plant grapes, you're of course you're going to plant. Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. because Pinot Noir is going to get your highest tonnage price. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're farming, like why am I, why would someone bother farming uh, an acre of Pinot Gris that they're gonna sell for a third of the price as they are an acre of Pinot Noir. And so then you have high priced Pinot Noir grapes, then from a winemaker's just costing perspective, needing to hit a certain dollar point, you know, for the cost of the grapes that go into the bottle and it created this kind of like weird like inflation mm. and then you also but then on the flip side you also created this huge incentive to just plant pinot pinot mm -hmm. lots of pinot mm -hmm. and then now we've seen the kind of the now the flip side of that of like what looks a bit more like a market crash where or get, the great pinocalypse yeah where you have then and pinogeddon <laughs> Suddenly we have, like, I remember like when um, the, like we had like winery that were like, that was like came out with like the $10 Pinot Noir and you're like, whoa, like what? Is, what is it even made out of? That? <laughs> yeah. And like, the, like this is like now like 15 years ago. Yeah. And now, you know, you got Pinot Noir that is coming in like, right, like regularly, like at, you know, 
there's fifteen dollars. There's the you know the six ninety nine cans. But there's yeah, the, and ten dollar okay. you know like or twelve dollar bottles on the shelf and it's, I don't, yeah. I mean I don't know. Um, it's kind of depressing if you spend any time looking at uh, like the classifieds on winejobs.com yeah. for fruit for sale, especially near the end of the growing season, and seeing how many farmers have uh, Pinot Noir on there and no buyers. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking because yeah. uh, growing a crop is not just obviously the work of one individual farmer, it's the work of many people throughout a growing season. It's the work of the plant and the environment and everything around it. And then to think that all of that work happened and then you're just gonna let the birds eat it. And yeah, or you're gonna try to like dump it at a loss. Like, you know, you see- It's heartbreaking. Yeah, and, and it, so like I do feel that like that upsets me because I feel like that that was kind of an artificial inflation that was fueled in part by just sort of a lot of this messaging of like, well, we are the Pinot Noir region, so this is what everyone does. Yes, please move here, clear 25 acres of land, plant some Pinot Noir, make a $35 bottle of Pinot Noir that then will maybe not get purchased and then your fruit not get picked and then uh, I hope you didn't spend your whole retirement on that. And that's kind of a, an interesting situation that we're in right now where uh, I don't feel like there's a, a lot of effort or time spent talking about it and perhaps maybe having the shorter vintage that we had this year will help uh, stabilize, things, stabilize things and help people's inventory at large a bit. But certainly, um, I mean, the way that I see it is there's way too much Pinot Noir planted uh, for the moment and there's maybe not enough market for it uh, even nationally, certainly not locally, and people are losing their shirts. And if you're a, an estate producer of grapes, uh, you have to do something with that fruit that you grow. So then you have people who are more traditional established producers that have large estate holdings that are um, probably behind on inventory. Yeah, and then so, but it, it all is about this idea of like, but it, I think all that came out of the rhetoric of like being the like, the Burgundian like region and and so sure you can look at Burgundy and you can say well this is this landmass that you know is greater you know larger than the Lamb Valley and then it's going to and that it's mostly planted to Pinot Noir but they've also been doing that for 600 years sure so and we've been doing it for not even 60 mm -hmm. and True. so you're like that but I think that there was this idea of like well we need to recreate that and I I don't think that that is I mean maybe long term so check back with us in 540 years and when see we're known as we're... the world's best producer of Gewurz Germina. yeah Oregon <laughs> yeah think Gewurz drink Oregon <laughs> it could and, be it and I guess like the reason that we feel like that this feels like very like emotional for us is because I think this was also in a way where like his Jim's dad ended up where he had these, these great grapes that he had put a lot of love and effort into growing and then was kind of caught in a situation where he didn't have a place to put them mm -hmm. or didn't have anyone who wanted to take them. And I think that, and so it, it like it is very heartbreaking to us to then see other growers that are, that go through that same thing and that that will continue to increase until something else happens like in the market. And you know, there's been a, a, a kind of one of our goals as we've grown. So initially we started out just being uh, an estate producer, just buying fruit from my family's vineyard. Uh, but we have, again, been entirely way too lucky in this and have uh, been able to develop uh, distribution partnerships with 
some really fantastic distributors across the country, uh, people that we have no right being in their book. And uh, on our first sales trip to New York, we realized uh, like right away, kind of um, like, oh my God, we're gonna have to make more wine, which was a, a cool feeling to have when just a few years mm -hmm. prior, when somebody said, how are you gonna sell a case of wine a day? I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> and now crap. suddenly, like, yeah, we gotta make more wine. Yeah. And, and realizing that, you know, the turnaround of, of wanting to just plant more grapes and then have those plants mature to the point where you can harvest fruit and make a wine is a fairly long-term prospect. So uh, we realized that we're going to have to start buying fruit from other vineyards. And one of the focuses for us, especially, um, you know, knowing uh, the situation where my dad was at was uh, trying to find other growers that are in a similar spot, people that have um, beautiful, uh, mature vineyards because vine age is a hard thing to replicate um, and working with them to give them an outlet for what they grow and so uh, we've been really lucky to partner uh, with a vineyard called Beckenridge which is in Dallas Oregon which is the town where I went to high school at and um, thought you'd never be back I thought I'd never go back I mean I don't know what <laughs> high school was like for most people. Jenny really liked high school, so I, I think that's her largest personality flaw. Yeah, um, but I went, I, to a, uh, like, I went to... She went to an arts college, or high school. Yeah, I went to like a magnet school, so, so it was like different. I, like, I uh, went to like weird, like, I, yeah. I, I hated high school. I was like, yeah. if all of Dallas, Oregon went away, nothing of value would have been lost, which is dire. Of course, that's not true. Dallas has many great things. Uh, the drive-in theater, for example, mm -hmm. is lovely. And Beckenridge Vineyard. So, um, we, we uh, were connected with the owners of Beckenridge through our friends, the Maloofs, and um, this, uh, we've been working with more and more of their fruit in this last year, 19. We now uh, contract for the entirety of the vineyard, which is fantastic. And it's been a great situation because it's allowed us to use uh, our very recent profitability to be able <laughs> yeah. to use, uh, our, our goal is like probably being uh, too left to live. Um, is to try to use capitalism as a tool against itself and so able to use money to incentivize uh, people to uh, help them or help us really uh, and it's always about us uh, to, to, to farm in a way that we feel better suits uh, our interests so uh, by incentivizing growers to grow organically because yeah, it's like not a that's not a inexpensive like ventures <clears throat> and so it's like if I would rather have a cool old veneered like Beckham Ridge that was planted more than 40 years ago and is this beautiful old site and you can't replicate vine age, but maybe they're, they're like farming like live, which was fine, but we, it is our preference that we want organic fruit. organic fruit. We want them to farm the vineyard in a way that we feel like is the most kind of environmentally responsible fashion. But also we realize that, that you're telling you're somebody, a lot you're, you're telling like, somebody how to live in their own house. And, and that's a lot of an ask. So we, uh, at least operate our business, probably our bookkeeper and accountant hate us for this, but we don't want to rip people off. We want to, we would much rather pay people more money if it means that uh, we can, you know, yeah, have them do what we want. Yeah, kind of um, the, the carrot and the stick. There, yeah, for sure. Like I, I don't want to swoop in and try to undercut somebody. I'd much rather right. pay somebody more money. And that, that's you know that's how we've been able to try to. And also not to like 
wag a finger at them like we don't like the way that you're farming and yeah. then like try to change you but no, it's this idea because that they're awesome wanna, people right that we want to grow together and that we think that the vineyard itself is is really special and we like what they're doing but this for us is um where we feel like that we're helping the vineyard be the vineyard like best but then also get something out of it for us which is that we're then getting to work with organic fruit hmm. and i think that we would much rather take that approach with growers and work with uh farmers that like i would much rather work with a farmer uh like at beckham ridge or like lucy and tom at sunnyside where they live on the farm that they're doing a, a lot of the work themselves hmm. and they care about it they they have an emotional investment investment in it in a way that um if you just own a piece of property kind of like a bachelor farmer type situation that maybe um is is not so much our our speed mm -hmm. we want uh to work with vineyards that um look like they have character yeah, you know you just yeah you say that because your vineyard is like that like it's not <laughs> <Come on. laughs> like come on yeah. you wanted to have a patina yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. yeah and so and that, i think that's, that the main that's goal. yeah and so uh, like priority for us is working with vineyards that are old vine which then as a result typically by default are then like dry farmed um many of them are own rooted uh, and then that they have kind of a, an owner proprietor that is on the on the site working the land. Hmm. Wait, what was the question again? Yeah. You got here organically. Yeah. 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 That's a good pun. I like it. He who would pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> That's from Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Wow, stop. It's a great movie. <laughs> stop. I think you might be the only person who ever saw that movie. Yeah. You, might, you might be the yeah, only one. Oh my dad. god. Yeah. yeah, my dad really likes he, he likes the books, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where you yeah. get it from. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so I think that's kind of where, yeah, we started as just working with Jim's parents' place, and then now we work with how many different vineyards this year? I think we worked with five yeah. this year. Uh, I think that's right. Yeah. And um, it's been uh, uh, kind of uh, an interesting growth thing for us. I mean, ideally, uh, I don't want to work with too many sites just because uh, it makes harvest logistics get more and more challenging. Yeah. And I'm not that smart. I'm not good at math. Neither of us are good at math. So like, yeah. we're like storyboarding it. We're like beautiful minding it. <laughs> but it's like not very beautiful mind. It's yeah. like, I don't know. Not beautiful. It's not beautiful. Uh, no. Yeah. But it, it has given us a, a lot more room to experiment because initially I think that it was cool and good for our development to just work with one site. And Jim's dad, because like we were just discussing, planted mostly Pinot Noir <laughs> and uh, one little skinny bit of Pinot Gris and, uh, and then a very um, non commercially like sized smattering of Chardonnay. Uh, and like that was it. And it's 15 acres and it doesn't produce a ton of fruit just given the, um, the specificity of the site and the fact that it's planted in this old ocean floor, own rooted, dry farmed. Mm. Uh, and so we, A, just didn't have a lot of fruit. Like he was, we had achieved our initial goal of getting him to work with other uh, wineries that we felt like that did really good things uh, with the grapes. But that meant that we were taking uh, just a kind of small piece of the pie uh, and 
Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, you can kind of only like, we like got to a point where we were making like four wines. We made uh, a light, we, we made basically like a white and a red out of both varieties mm -hmm. uh, and then realized, boy, wouldn't it be nice to like. Hot dogs three ways. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> yeah. what are we doing here? We got we to yeah, branch out of it. I know. Yeah. You're just like taking, you're just cutting up like, yeah. It's the, the Simpsons thing and Marge has like the Chanel dress and she just like cuts it up into like a thousand different like outfits. Uh, but it's, so it felt a little bit like that. And so I think that, I'm trying to think, what was the next fruit that we bought after? I don't even remember. Hair, was it recently? It was recently. Yeah. Yeah, so the thing uh, as, um, we've been able to work with a lot of these older vineyards that's been exciting for us is uh, remembering what uh, going wine tasting uh, was like when I was little. Not that I was going wine tasting, but that my parents were going wine tasting and I got to sit in the corner. This is of course pre-tablets or pre-phones, so you just sit in the corner and be bored out of your mind. Just painful, just brutal, the worst. And your parents say, let's go wine tasting, and you're seven, you're like, oh my god, please no. My parents never took me wine tasting. Uh, they didn't love you. And so, they love you. Um, and so, uh, when I would go wine tasting with them, just remembering the wines that existed at uh, uh, wineries at that time, you know, there was a lot more of a focus on aromatic white grapes um, and things like that. So it's been fun for us as we work with a lot of these older vineyards, finding what they have planted there. And so, um, this last year, uh, now that we have taken over uh, all of uh, Beckenridge Vineyard, mm -hmm. uh, they have uh, a small planting of Niagara, which is uh, an American grape. And, uh, you know, we think, God, what are we going to do with Niagara? I mean, I don't really have any, I have any real love affair with uh, Welch's white grape juice. <laughs> so what are we going to do? And so we came up with the plan. And so that is sometimes the element of this that I always find exciting is uh, the brainstorming, um, the dreaming, and then hopefully if you don't totally screw it up, the, the actualizing, which mm -hmm. happens every once in a while. And that feels great when that happens. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so we now work with Riesling and Gewurztraminer and Oxerwa for those mm -hmm. last year for the first time. And Gruner. And Gruner and uh, Semion. Yeah. And, uh, we went on a little bit of a shopping spree. So you like <laughs> yeah. you go from like having just two grapes to yeah. then like you want to like kind of try the rainbow. Uh, but I think that like having that initial basis and like that was sort of the first experiment, you know, sort of first experimentation for us was that in a way like kind of just using all like the kind of art metaphor stuff of like having the the kind of um, constraints really helps to fuel creativity and so I think that our most no matter what of all the kind of weird kooky wines that we make probably our most popular one is one of the first wines that we made which is the by accident yeah originally by well of course yeah uh, which is skin contact pinot gris and yeah certainly I would say that it's our most popular it's like kind wine. of our it's signature the, wine it's the wine that I enjoy making the most yeah but I think it, it says something about us um, as like a wine label that our signature wine is a red pinot gris that was a mistake in making it initially initially yeah. now it's very intentional yeah I appreciate you not telling me what your plans are with the Niagara, so that when you come out with like Niagara preserves, it'll yeah, be right. oh. You can just say that was the plan. 
Well, we that's, that's what I should have done. Why weren't you here a few months ago? We could <laughs> yeah. have done that. You would have I saved know, us all this trouble. Better, yeah. No, we, uh, so we decided that, um, so kind of the characteristics of Niagara is obviously it's explosively aromatic and fruity, mm. um, but it's a, a really, really like high acid grape that doesn't get particularly ripe. Um, I mean, it's it's like ripe in the way that like um, the flavors are developed. Well, it's like or it's like kind of like table grapes, sure. like ripeness, where it's like you eat a grape, you know, out of hand, and it's like sweet, like a Thompson seedless or something. But it's certainly not nowhere near the sweetness concentration that now like we have trained or like have grown uh, wine grapes like Vitus vinifera to, to produce the kind of sugar concentration. So in that way, uh, we realized it's perfect for sparkling production. Mm -hmm. High acid, low sugars, um, and tons of fruit. So with the knowledge that it's perfect for sparkling production, uh, we made a fortified dessert wine. No, just kidding. We, <laughs> we made sparkling wine with yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. uh, we made a, we, we, because uh, uh, we're always just following trends. So it's a pet nut. Yeah. Also yeah. because it's a lot easier than trying to make it. Yeah. Like the the, 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 the like, economics yeah. of making sparkling wine are absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the excise tax on it alone is crippling. Um, the actual packaging and materials that go into it are very expensive. So. Um, but it's super fun. It's so much fun. Wine. But then, yeah, exactly. But then, you know, I, I don't know how how much we're going to like be able to ask people to want to pay for sparkling Niagara. We're gonna you know, find out. Yeah, we're gonna find <laughs> out. So, at any rate, so, so so the the pet net methodology at least uh, allowed us to make it in the uh, I think the cheapest uh, way possible. Yeah, sure, but but if you put on your marketing hat, it was definitely what the grapes told us they wanted. You know, yeah, that was what they wanted. Yeah, but it was cool. It was, uh, but it was fortuitous that we had the we had these grapes available to us because I don't think I would have ever gone out seeking Niagara, but I think that it really helped to. I reposition my brain and my palate for kind of the the possibilities of like wine and wine flavors that uh -huh. I think that um, because everyone's taste for like everyone's first taste of like Walter's white grape juice mm. you're like oh you know this is like gross kid stuff mm. and so the idea that or people have you know the horror stories about like drinking like you know Concord wine and things like that and mm. but that there's this really heavy you know you're really decolonizing your palate, aren't you? Yeah, it's just like, because it's like wine is Eurocentric, I mean, by kind of, by nature, by default. Sure. And that, but that we adopt all the trappings of it, even in the Americas and kind of how ridiculous that is. And then we would take something that is like, that natively grows of, you know, that there are not just Niagara, but all these other different types of native American varieties that then um, people kind of discount as being not capable of producing mm. fine wine. And I mean, I don't know if we're, we're, to be seen whether yeah, or not this wine is we're fine. capable of producing <laughs> fine wine, but just this idea of opening your your I, yourself to the possibility of like, you know, like from an environmental standpoint, like a growing a grape that is that wants to be grown here um, means mm. that it's far less prone to disease. Yeah, way way less input um, during the you know growing season yeah. uh, and maybe that becomes kind of a potentiality for the future of, of wine is more using more native or hybrid mm. varieties. So we just need to find more high elevation, old vine, organically farmed Niagara. You yeah. know, that's, that's the sales pitch. None of that, you know, valley floor, young vine Niagara that people aren't interested yeah, in. Yeah, right, know. yeah. This is very classy. Well, there's some- We'll put some gold foil, lots of embossing on the label yeah. so people know. Yeah, 
Grape design. Grape design. It's very yeah. expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chateau Fossil and Fawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll be the yeah. fancy one. So before I ask about the other things in the future uh -huh. for yeah. Fossil and Fawn, I want to back up for just a second. Uh, we kind of you kind of glossed over a little bit about the about making starting to make wine. I'm curious. Uh, you both had a, a bit of a wine background from a sales and from a consumer side. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the process of actually learning to make wine and, and what it was that attracted you to want to do it uh, commercially. Um, I would say that I am a uh, walking, talking advertisement for uh, Chemeketa Community College. All of it. Should put them on the billboards. Should. Um, not just not just the uh, uh, um, grape growing and viticulture and sorry viticulture and the winemaking classes. Um, all the stuff there. It's fantastic. I would say that um, being able to go to uh, a school where you can. Um, learn about things that you're actually passionate about, which was my first time ever experiencing that as, as, a, as a human of any age, where you go there and you're like, oh my God, I don't have to learn about, um, I guess I did have to take math classes, damn it. But, uh, but, <laughs> but other than that, if we exclude the math classes at Shemakadawa, everything is great. But you're like there with a purpose. Like it's yeah. not like, I mean, I think that most people's experience of going through school, like going to college, like out of like high school is that you're like, I'm going to school so I can figure out what I want to do mm -hmm. instead of going to school with the idea of like, this is what I want to do. Sure. And ultimately the idea, the thing that uh, I think drew me to uh, the notion of, of uh, winemaking on, on a kind of bigger picture levels. I, I like to create things. I want to make something. And so um, there's probably that element of, of ego that's wrapped up in that too, where you want to make something that's a projection of you. Um, so that, that's great. Uh, but the, I think, element of winemaking that uh, still always excites me, which I wouldn't have known this starting out, but I think once I experienced it really hooked me is, um, is the onset of fermentation. And every year when it happens, it's truly the most exciting thing. It's like that feeling of, of like your birthday or something like that, where like the anticipation leading up to it, like uh, you're like excited, maybe, maybe more of a birthday when like you're little mm -hmm. and you're excited about it and you're like, oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then it happens. And then the next day, it just felt like it didn't, it didn't, it didn't even exist at all. It just, it came and it went so quickly. And that's how I feel like that's what it is every year when you're, you're waiting for the onset of fermentation. The grapes are picked, you know, you, you spend all this time in the vineyard growing them. That's great. But then they get here and they're at the winery and everything we do um, is, is native yeast. So it's uh, that challenge of, of kind of shepherding uh, fermentation and holding, uh, holding its hand. And then finally, when you see signs of life, uh, when you feel the push of CO2 and all of those things that go along with it, it's truly exciting. And I wouldn't have known that starting out. I wouldn't have known that when I started at Shemakita, but now every year when it happens, it's the most mm -hmm. exciting thing. It's, um, that's when it feels like, uh, like spring has sprung. Like that's the feeling right <laughs> there. That's, that's yeah. the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, working with, um, also uh, cool artists to design, um, labels and packaging that we like as well. Yeah, so it kind of like it becomes like a well, ooh, I guess I gotta like be good at this and make mine to like it's it's like <laughs> you put truly the cart before the horse. Like it's yeah, like yeah. I gotta make <laughs> the like we have this cool thing going and now we need to like make the the wine justify like the yeah. 
the coolness of the package. We're like buying clothes too small so that we'll force <laughs> ourselves to exercise to fit into them. Yeah, that does not That's work for me. not great. Uh, so we're coming with great labels, so we're like, ah, the wine should at least be passable. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I think a lot of it was driven by this idea of helping out your dad initially. And then I think once you, once we got kind of that first taste of making wine for ourselves, yeah, then, then you get hooked because then it's the ego takes over. <laughs> it is. And it's, it's, uh, and, and to be fair, um, I, I think, uh, I'm pretty critical of what we make. Oh yeah. You're terrible. And so the feeling of always wanting to somehow please myself. Yeah. And I think there's also the, and that's ego. the, whether you want to admit it or not, I think there's also like the, the parental pride, like, you know the the you're seeking that from your parents that you're taking grapes that his dad has you know labored over you know growing and and truly like bringing to fruition and then you're going to make a wine from that that then he feels proud of mm -hmm. that because it's because it's also a reflection of his output and i think that so for us the, and that has also i think been a reason why we've kind of now strayed into these like using different grapes and making these kind of more kooky wines where I think for us, like sometimes when we're out selling wine, the Pinot Noir is sort of the hardest pitch for us because it is the least, um, it has the least weird story. It's just kind of like, we make this wine, um, in the most classical way to be a reflection of the fruit that your dad grew and of the place that you mm. grew up. And so in that way, and I mean, that has informed some of the winemaking style that is kind of throughout everything that we do, which is a little bit more of that, like older barrel, lower intervention, just trying to kind of coax it into being this representation of the sense of place. Mm. But that, you know, it's because you want to, you want to say, this is, this is me. This is my dad. This is where I grew up. These are the grapes. That's true. And then I would say, but on top of that, I think the element that uh, keeps me more and more excited every year beyond just uh, the self-flagellation of like, oh, I hate this, I want to get better, um, is the feeling of being inspired by people that you see making wines that you really love and trying to uh, learn how they make them and trying to uh, steal their technique. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, for us, uh, uh, we've mentioned like those kind of maybe mentors that we had from the, the, those pioneering spirits in Oregon. But for us, like probably uh, the single like biggest, uh, uh, I guess, hero that I have for modern Pinot Noir is probably Jesus Guillen. And so thinking about the wines that he made and uh, we had uh, the uh, pleasure of at least kind of two ships passing in the night. We didn't make our wines at the uh, shared space that uh, he and his family were making their wines at, uh, but we had friends that were, and so we would go in there and see how um, they were making their wines, and we're like, we, we right away, um, we're like, oh, I want to copy that. And yeah. Jesus uh, was always somebody who was uh, very giving of his knowledge and time, so, you know, I just messaged him, I was like, hey, Jesus, where'd you buy those fermenters at? And, and yeah, tell me about tell them. Tell me about them. And he was great, he was super helpful, and he uh, gave me all the info we needed, and so we've, ever since then, been trying to, uh, <laughs> copy how he made wine and failing miserably but yeah. you know always trying at least yeah it's yeah. inspired by yeah. yeah and there's other like uh and i think that is a piece of like having the 
the conversation with other winemakers. Like, um, I mean, we also d started doing Carbonic because of Corey Schuster. Like, from Jackalope, yeah, yeah. from Jackalope, yeah. And we copied the way that he did it. Yeah. And it worked really well. Yeah. Or like when, and also when we were starting out and kind of, and like mentorship in a way, but I'd still see him more kind of uh, as a peer because he's a cool guy, but like Vincent Fritchie um, also I think had taught us a lot about. He's um, more like a big brother. He's like a big brother. Yeah, for sure. Like of just being like, being cool. Yeah. <laughs> like don't, don't mess with it. Like you're going to want to, yeah, you're going to like, he, he is a very, he has like the, uh, I call it like the surfer philosopher Zen quality where he's like, yeah, like I don't, I don't touch this until like I can tell that like fermentation is like really like kicking off where I think that if you talk to other winemakers, they'd be like, Oh, well, you know, like I do this cold soak or I add this or I want to punch this. And he's just like, no, like just wait. And I think that that has helped to like inform kind of our way of doing things and also just helps to calm us, calm us down. Hmm. We, get, we I think it's very easy to get panicked in the winery. It's almost, it's, it's fun to get panicked. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. feeling all the time. Yeah. Harvest is always that. Like it's you think that. you think you have a plan and then no, you don't have you a don't plan. Have a plan. Your plan's garbage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what you think and what it is. is I mean, we planned to bring in 50 tons of fruit this year, but because of all of the rains that we experienced in September and a variety of other factors, we have a grower that left uh, their uh, fence open and they have cows that graze nearby. And the cows went in and uh, completely, they didn't eat any of the leaves. It turns out cows are smarter than we thought. <laughs> and they just went and like, like just stripped all of the bunches clean. So they lost probably, uh, I don't know, a two acre block of Pinot Gris. And um, so out of the 50 tons we were looking to bring in, we only brought in 28 tons. So when you make a, a harvest plan where you're buying equipment based around the notion of 50 tons and then suddenly you realize that uh, nearly half of it is unnecessary, yeah. After you've already spent the money and laid out the plan, then you're kind of thinking, oh. I'm glad huh. that we didn't do 50 tons. I'm I glad that we didn't do I don't think tons. we would be here. <laughs> next year. <laughs> next year. Yeah, we'll like, yeah. Now we've like, had some time to actually yeah. prepare. Because again, like you're, what you think your preparation is and versus how it actually, mm. yeah, you're never, you're never prepared for it. Let's kill ourselves next year. 50 yeah. tons. There okay. we are. Done. Do it. Done. <laughs> but it's certainly one of those challenges because you have certain wines that you're trying to make that exist in your lineup, but then now you're coming in so light that we were, there was a point where we were at risk of not being able to make, uh, I think, two or three different wines that we, that we have historically made mm -hmm. because there just wasn't fruit for it. And so you have to uh, kind of scramble at the end. Um, but with the, the challenges of uh, this year's weather, um, there were certainly, there was kind of like a point of very diminishing returns where suddenly you came in light, but you don't really want to go out there looking for more fruit because um, there's really, I think, a lot of concern uh, about the quality of fruit that could be coming in later and later into the season. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, isn't to exactly. say that I, I, I feel pessimistic about uh, the quality of the fruit that we harvested that came in. I, I mean, honestly, as part of the, the kind of get weird, suck lessness of it, I, I genuinely feel like the wines that we're making this year are the best wines that we have made since mm -hmm. last year, at least. Yeah. And, and are probably better, even. Every, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't go backwards. You don't go backwards. And so yeah. there's that kind of like feeling like I'm not down on it, but I, I do know that there will probably be lots of people that have, I shouldn't say lots, there will be people who have, uh, will have had a challenging year as a result of 
the fruit that came in last yeah. harvest. Mm -hmm. But I think that like now as an industry, we're also better about like talking about that kind of thing. Because mm. I remember there's like, no problem here. Well, but the flip side, you have vintages like the 2007 vintage, which right. was my second year in the business and like having, you know, it just took like a couple like interviews with some like harried winemakers who were like in the, like kind of in the middle of it when it was like raining during harvest and suddenly like the entire vintage was like written off, mm -hmm. you know, and then mm -hmm. it was this uphill battle to then go sell these wines. 2007s are like were and are amazing wines mm. uh, and it's but it was just that it was a really hard hard go of it but I think that sure. now we, so yeah, we know to like be like you know it's because it's also it's close ranks it, say nothing it's also it's not nothing over until it's here. over and the yeah, thing sure. is, is there's you're I, like I don't I hope that this happens to other winemakers and I feel like it does we've talked to people about this but there's always points during I mean, harvest is so frantic and you're losing your mind and you have no, you're not sleeping and you're like working super hard late hours. Um, so you're not in a good emotional spot to be asked about how things are going. But then even like in hindsight, like during like at this point, we're like tasting through barrels and kind of seeing how things go along. And there are always periods where you taste a barrel and you're like, ew, like what, what is wrong with you? Like, and a lot of it is just having faith in the fact that it's like it's going through its own weird awkward puberty just the same way that we did and look how we no wait that's not going to go good uh, like look how we turned out are you about to say look how great i turned out <laughs> yes, yeah but just the idea that you look great like, yeah you thanks did, yeah and that's why i said this yeah. is a bad analogy but like but the fact that you like there are always going to be these weird points just because of the magic of fermentation where you're like, uh, I don't know where this guy is at. It's got some things to work out. And then eventually it does. And we had barrels like that last year yeah. where we were like, I like, are we going to like, is this going to be like our first wines that we like maybe like are going to get rid of? Mm -hmm. Or like, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, there, there was definitely those moments and the wines were, ended up being, better than the year before. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're experiencing the same thing where we had, definitely there were some moments where we were just like, oh, I don't like the taste of this. You were you're really freaked out about some stuff. And never, not me. Never, yeah, no, you don't get panicked never. ever. Uh, Even. <laughs> and then by the end of it, like already tasting them, we're like, yeah, okay. Like I see where this is going. I think it's gonna be okay. And by the time we're ready to bottle, that's, that's it. And in fact, you always say mm. that you know when it's time to bottle. Yeah, it's usually uh, the, the moment that you know it's right to bottle a wine is when it tastes its worst. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only, I'm halfway joking and halfway serious when I say yeah. that, which is the fact that honestly, like... Uh, you're like fed up with it. You're fed up with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm also dubious of any wine that you taste out of barrel and taste too good because you're like, oh... It shouldn't taste like that. It shouldn't yeah. taste like that. It's just, it's going to go somewhere awful now. So yeah. yeah, it's better to have the wines that, yeah, take a, they're a little slower to come around. Yeah. Yeah. Those wines that really ask you to be patient. Yeah. I don't know where you get that idea from. <laughs> I have no patience. Yeah. So you were, you guys made the uh, 40 under 40 tastemakers issue of wine enthusiasts recently. Tell me, tell me about that and how, how that came about and, and if it, if it, if it meant know. something to you, what it meant. My mom thinks it's cool. Does she? Yeah. Cool. She has the magazine on her 
little like her coffee table in her living room you know like oh. the living room where you have like guests you know it's a nice the parlor the nice yeah the, the the place where the kids aren't allowed like i i'll just go back to my common refrain which is that we've been incredibly lucky and, yeah for sure and it's not like i feel like we deserve it and certainly going and uh doing the photo shoot for it uh really you're filled with lots of kind of imposter syndrome in the moment yeah um, and so um i mean how did it come about I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of it is just that... Our PR firm, which we uh, have on our chain that we pay <laughs> lots of money to yeah. every month, yeah, goes no. to the right kind of parties, no. meets the right kinds of people, yeah. and, you know, they just made it happen for us behind the scenes. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> stop, no. To be clear, we do not pay a PR firm, we do not pay ourselves, uh, and so it, it just, I think it came about because we, um, a lot of it was just, it's wine just like so many other things is relationships and so it was just over the years on uh, making friends with other uh, people who we think are cool and fun to talk to and yes. they were people that then um, know people who then work at wine enthusiast and uh, must have been really kind enough to like kind of put our name in a hat I guess kind yeah. of thing I don't know I don't know their process for determining it but I mean I think a lot of it is just that over the years we like cultivated relationships with people who were like writing about wine or like blogging about wine you know where you're thinking like like I don't I guess like there I, I try to approach the feeling of like I am not like setting out to like become friends with like important people like i just want to be friends with people who i think are cool and fun to talk to well i, I mean yeah and i think it's kind of back to the thing you said earlier about uh when you were starting out at ponzi and you can go and visit other tasting rooms yeah. right and taste for free there's that kind of sense of community that exists within the industry yeah. and you just make friends with people you just make friends with people and you don't know where somebody's going to end up mm -hmm. yeah. the industry's small and people move around a lot mm -hmm. and so you know that element of of making friends with people mm -hmm. yeah and you just and is, then they has, just become part of your bigger community and hopefully yeah. you just try not to be like just don't be a jerk and right. be friends with people and you don't be that tasting room that doesn't offer tastings to people in the industry yeah right exactly or yeah. whatever because you, just, you never forget that yeah or you yeah. just become or you just know like everyone has like people have long memories and so if you're yeah. just nice to people and you are generous and they're generous and everyone just becomes Absolutely. friends then it just it works its way out and so we were just really really stupidly lucky that we had incredibly uh, flattered yeah so like somebody Still, somebody who said something really nice to someone at wine enthusiast and our our name was put in their hat 100 percent don't feel like we belong yeah no it was like it was i was shocked Still in. yeah because it was that weird thing where you get like an email that's like you're in like the final pool and we were like it's like publisher's clearing house like you got the thing in the middle it says i'm gonna win a hundred thousand dollars yeah, like, and you're oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you send that to everyone yeah and then like yeah. a week later you get the like congrats like letter and you're yeah like, it's you and you're like has there been a mistake yeah so that was incredible is there funny. another fossil and fawn yeah. out there possibly waiting to sue us uh we can change our name to knife fight yeah and so yeah then it was it what really made it real was when they when basically they said 
okay, um, now we've got to like book the like the photo shoot, hmm. and you're gonna fly to San Francisco and you're gonna do it, uh, and and yeah, it was. And we did it, and Jenny poured a lot of wine on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I didn't have a change of clothes, so I had to then go from the photo shoot to the airport in wine-soaked clothes, mm-hmm. which. Uh, I was thinking TSA would have a harder time with that because uh, I, I smelled awful. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there's apparently that's a fairly common thing. I guess TSA yeah. was like, no big deal, nothing no to problem. see here. Yeah. Walk on through. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and so that, that was it. But yeah, I mean, it's like it, it was super cool, and I feel like that it was an honor to be included. But I am still confused by it. <laughs> Cause it's like, cause also I feel like the term like tastemaker is like super loaded. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know what we're doing that is like particularly interesting or innovative that like made us like stand out. I mean, I think that they, one of the, the elements that they highlighted that they liked was the fact that we, and this also just, uh, I feel like it's not going to age well, but it's like, that like Same. we're really good at social media engagement, which just sounds dumb. It's like, we're just ourselves. It's not like, again, we don't like hire a, a firm. It's really, it's mostly just, um, Jim is a super talented photographer. He's really interested in, that's just part of his artistic practice just, um, in his life. And so he loves to take lots of pictures and bug me taking lots of pictures, take pictures the winemaking process and then he needed an outlet for it and so he just posted them on instagram and we are also as you can tell very weird people and so we just are weird selves on the internet and extremely online trying to figure out how to get tiktok under control because i'm trying to get that sub 21 category (laughs) the future drinkers yeah not really my lawyer would probably make me say that's not that's not that's real. actually not that's working, not real yeah. no but it's yeah i think that for us it's just it was it's fun and so we're just way too way too online and apparently that resonates with people <laughs> uh, which is cool yeah. it's great we've really got that like really extremely online crowd yeah yeah so he's yeah, that's it and that's that's what they said and because it's like it's part of like the storytelling because i and and truly it, i mean like i hate to give like a uh, big technology companies uh you know like facebook uh any kind of um of my my respect but i feel like that it does democratize the kind of um promotional space in the sense that like we would never ever ever be able to pay or justify paying for like advertising in like a magazine or you know on radio or uh, traditional forms of media and for free granted you know you're the you're the product uh in social media like we can create a page where we can have access to all these people who otherwise would never have a chance to hear Mm. who we are or anything about us and now you know there are people who for reasons i don't understand like want to engage with us online they only knew yeah right they only knew I do feel like that that is a bit of a disappointment where we get people who reach out to us from like Instagram who like follow us and read our, you know, obviously like limitedly curated version of ourselves <laughs> and then want to come out and like taste wine with us. And I think that there's always that fear that like we're not going to live up to it, that mm-hmm. we're not exciting people in person. If they only knew that I was just at home watching LCBO videos, <laughs> right, yeah. some guy travel the world drinking wine. Mm-hmm. Hey? Yeah, you're cooler than that guy. Yeah. Um, they only knew you met at Whole Foods. If they only yeah, knew you right? met at Whole Foods. In a knife fight. In a knife fight. <laughs> yeah. 
and on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you two? What do you see as you look ahead for yourselves and for mm. Fossil and Fawn mm. down the road? Where are you in a decade? Where do I want to be when I grow up? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, um, I would like to have our own space mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah. Um, we really don't have small, a small goals. We don't have a huge uh, uh, requirement. Um, the second space we made wine at um, was pretty similar to where we're at now in the sense that it doesn't have any floor drains and basically just kind of felt like a big closet. Mm -hmm. It was an old auto body garage um, and now we're in a lean-to on the side of a barn and doesn't have any floor drains and uh, you know I don't really so we've like haven't really gotten any further. It has more garage doors which is cool. That's true. a lot a lot of garage doors. Yeah, like have one, it. two, three, four, five, six garage doors. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. We're garage door rich yeah. um, <laughs> except we're renting. Yeah. Uh, having, having our own space I think that getting to a point where the business itself is sustainable um where like because we like to be able like, to pay ourselves yeah and where we could make a, a living off this i don't and i think a modest living is is the most realistic in the sense that like i mean unless unless like a really like cool big like beverage portfolio wants to like come and give me like 15 million dollars tomorrow in which case i'd be like yeah let's sell out uh i expect that this is just what we're gonna do and just have enough to to get by on yeah i mean that was kind I'd of like to quit my day job that was one of the things that like really always uh um i think i i've always liked about the oregon wine industry is that um when because i also worked at Sokol blosser for a period of time too but I loved the fact that uh, when you considered the actual land holdings, the value of uh, the winery and the tasting room they have there, that it's worth millions and millions of dollars. And that's awesome for them. They, they've worked hard and they, they deserve that. But I still love the fact that Alex Sokolbosser drove a Honda. And I was like, <laughs> that just said it to me right there. I yeah, was like, I yeah. And that, that's... A practical vehicle, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. But that's, that's like what I'm, you know, my dream would be to like have my own space, have our space. You already have a Honda. I was going to say, I hope your dream is to have a Honda. I already have <laughs> one. I'm already He's there. his dream. I'm already yeah. there. So, you yeah. know, just... But I have yeah. A, yeah, like I think that that would be, that's like the goal is to make, is to make the, the business self-sustaining. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is, and I think that that... Um, has I think setting those kind of small realistic goals has been useful for us so I mean I think that our initial goal was profitability in five years we made an eight mm. which I think is like a, a decent um overage you know I think that yeah and so maybe in ten, by 10 years so 20 roughly 20 years in the business if we can get to self-sustaining I would feel really good about and, that you know the thing is is no one teaches you how to do business no one I mean uh, insofar as I know uh, I don't even know if an MBA program teaches you how to actually run a small business which I certainly have no aspirations to go to an MBA program which yeah but um, you're right yeah so the, the thing is that we we learned by all sorts of you know by by Trial and error. Trial and error, surrounding ourselves with people who know more than us um, mm -hmm. and, and trying to figure things out. Uh, the, the thing of going from 50 to 100 cases is not a big jump. Going from 100 to 200 is not so big, but ultimately going from 2,000 to 4,000, the um, logistics get along. involved with that suddenly uh, get exponentially more complicated. And so as we're making these larger and larger jumps, learning how to navigate that and um, still make better wine every year and not also lose our minds. Mm -hmm. uh, there certainly is that feeling at the end of harvest where I feel probably 10 years older. Yeah. 
Like it takes, yeah. It, it takes its toll, uh, but it's still the best thing that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah, and the ability to do it for, and kind of, yeah, work for yourself is something oh, that. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I'm a terrible employee, it's just a fact. Yeah. I really am. And so, um, I'm not a great boss either. So, uh, yeah. the fact that I get to be both for myself at the same time every day, it's a blessing. Yeah. It's really the best. For everyone's sake. <laughs> for everyone's sake, for yeah. sure. Yeah. What about as you look ahead for Oregon in general, what do you see as the industry is, what is it going to look like in 10 years? What are you hoping, what are you fearing? What does it look like in 10 years? Well, so it's, we're at this interesting time where you, you see a bit of contraction happening in, in other related beverage industry. So you see the closure of like Bridgeport and you see in, uh, yeah, the beer industry. A, lot a lot of other of craft breweries that have opened in Portland even in the last 10 years to, to fanfare and acclaim have sold and gone out of business. And I, I kind of wonder if that's a bit of a precursor to uh, things that we'll experience within other uh, uh, segments of the craft beverage industry. Um, we are coming off of uh, essentially, um, if you exclude 19, many large vintages in terms of overall production. And as I was mentioning, if you are in a state winery, uh, that has vineyards that produce fruit and in those large years produce year after year after year of um, more fruit than you probably would want to handle uh, creates uh, a situation. So we'll see probably some of the older more established wineries um, are either having to get creative and I don't think just putting your wine in the can is a creative outlet that's going to be the panacea that will help all those people. I also don't just think making cheap Pinot Noir is going to be the option that will help all of those people, it will be interesting to see. Um, I would not be surprised if we saw, uh, even amongst the kind of more established old guard, uh, either uh, closure, sale, or, or more likely sales. Yeah, and you've already seen some of that. I mean, and For I sure. think that that's, and it is an interesting thing that we talk about, like Oregon definitely having a little bit more of a, a modest, more kind of like homespun, you know, feel for many wineries that if you're, if you want to retire after doing this for 40 years, like, uh, you know, you're like, what are your options? And I think that there will be people who will be looking to mm. sell either like, you know, as like turnkey operations, which then may be more advantageous for people kind of of our cohort who will be looking to move into spaces mm -hmm. that can be our own, or um, they will sell to larger entities. And I think that you know, you've seen market consolidation, and I think that that will probably continue in some part as maybe some of these older wineries just get to a point where they don't, they can't or won't, don't want to make it work anymore. Uh, and I think that it'll, depending on kind of the state of like where we're at with um, sort of the market at large, I mean, right now we're staring down the reality of like, um, you know, tariff increases and like trade war stuff that then will have enormous reverberative impacts on um, on just like the domestic market in terms of like the distribution channels. Like we have our distributors who are very concerned right now that they may go out of business. And so if this were to happen, it would, it would, it would decimate a lot of the domestic industry. And so I think that that's, that's very, you know, short term of like seeing how that mm -hmm. all shakes out. I mean like 98% of our business is through distribution. Yeah. So, and most of our distributors, I would say over 60% of their portfolio, in many cases, much more than 60%, mm -hmm. Uh, is represented by imports mm -hmm. and if suddenly that portion of their business 
essentially dries up, then it doesn't have a real positive impact for us. It's not like um, they're just going to start selling uh, twice as much fossil and fawn wine because yeah. they can't bring in Burgundy. Yeah. That's not how it works. Right. And so it's, it's, it's sometimes, I feel like right now it's almost hard to think about like the next 10 years when like we, like in the hypotheticals, when we have like this real thing that might like actually have this real impact in the very near future. But, mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I think you'll, yeah, I think you'll, what I'm excited about right now is that because of this, you know, for better, for worse, like kind of like backlash against Pinot Noir, that you now have had this resurgence of all these other different varieties that have become more popular, people are more interested in, and I hope that that will continue, and I think you'll, you'll continue to see God, I hope uh, so. development in that, and I think that that's, I think it is, because I think it's happening right uh, now. People, when they say, think Oregon, drink, fill in a blank with a billion different grapes, in the same drink way that- Niagara. Yeah, drink Niagara, in the same way that when you say, think California. Well, what is that one grape you're going to fill it in with? And you, sure, of course, you could say Cabernet, Cabernet or Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. But there's so many others, and I feel like Oregon has uh, the right environment, not, not just uh, the actual uh, physical environment, mm -hmm. but um, in terms of the people who are here to to make something uh, very unique and diverse happen. In terms of huh. wine grapes that people are growing, styles of wines that people are making, mm -hmm. and I. I feel that the younger consumer that exists now is probably more interested in uh, brands that um, are looking for um, uh, wines that have a respect for farming and have a unique story to tell versus say a wine that is is interested in prestige. Yeah, or is just lo like luxury for luxury's sake. But I, that being said, I'm also mindful of the fact that everyone gets old. And so <laughs> I'm not as, I'm not as, I'm not as young as I once was. <laughs> and so uh, the the cyclicality of these things as mm -hmm. it exists and who is, who's to say that the children of this generation of people in my mind that are looking for these grapes that have a, or wines that have a, a, a real focus on specific place and farming quality that the children of these people as they get older as the way that they uh, rebel against their parents are suddenly now they're like I want a gold foil super embossed incredibly heavy wine that tastes like 400% new barrel and you know just makes my hippie dad die or something like that <laughs> like that's basically the way that everything goes so, so our yeah. distributor in New York he's been doing this for a long time and he has uh, enough uh, kind of uh, I think knowledge to point out to us that when he first started going to France um, he was saying that people at the time would always talk about like how small their yields were. And it's very similar here in Oregon. You know, people, oh yeah, we get quarter ton per acre. It's real tiny, lots of new barrel, lots of concentration. And how, you know, now the people that he talks to are the exact opposite, you know, that, oh, well, you know, we get more yield, there's no new barrel and all of these things. And th his point to me was that, you know, obviously just, it's a pendulum swing and I see that too. And for right now, we'll, we're riding that pendulum all the way, but yeah. I think about, in the kind of inspiration of, of being true to oneself, uh, uh, somebody like the Irie Vineyards who has managed to be uh, the Willamette Valley's oldest and still at the same time produce wines that are cutting edge and unique yeah. and interesting. That tightrope act of being classical and then also forward. Innovative. Yeah. And innovative. And for me, I think the way that they do that is just by being themselves. Yeah. And Absolutely. you're not trying to say, well, somebody comes into my tasting room and they really like sweet Riesling, so I made a sweet Riesling for them. I mean, that's great. That's a good business model for a lot of people, but... Yeah. I don't want a part of it. It's not what I'm interested in. 
Mm. I like sweet Riesling, but I don't. I love sweet Riesling. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, but I'm not making it for anyone else. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Just a happy coincidence that they happen to like it too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you guys have been together a while. Mm -hmm. You live together. You work Mm -hmm. together. What's the secret to making to having this sort of successful relationship within the wine industry while you're? <laughs> I, I mean, it's the same thing. I think probably for any yeah. functional relationship, whether it be yeah. personal or business, is uh, open lines of communication yeah. and um, the uh, uh, capacity to uh, let Jenny uh, yell at me and tell me when I'm being an asshole. Yeah, that's a that's, we we go through this every harvest where uh, Jim gets really freaked out, and so my response to that is to scream at him to be calm. And yeah. uh, it's and pretty it effective, honestly. It works every time. Uh, yeah. no, nothing like having someone yell, be calm at you, will to make, make you really, really be calm. calm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just think a lot of it is just um, having commonality of interests. Yeah, having the, the, I mean, we have the same sense of humor. More I'm sorry. Less. Yeah, I know. It's rough for me. Uh, uh, but I think, and having, I think, a, the shared vision, which just sounds like very hokey, but I think mm. it's true. It's like that, I think that if we were, if we had different aims for where we wanted to take Fossil and Fawn, I think that we would have a lot harder time. Hmm. But I think that we're on the same wavelength as hmm. far as like the kind of wines that we want to make, the kind of things that we're interested in. It's having sort of the aesthetic alignment, but then also having the values alignment of like, I'm not in this to make, you know, wine for this imaginary consumer. We just want to have hmm. have fun and be dumb. Yes. Together. Yeah. yeah. I, I think this is uh, it, not to be too precious, but we don't have children. Yeah. We live in a studio apartment. It'd be challenging. Um, but the, the wine is our child, and that's the precious part. Yeah. It's, it's really, uh, it consumes a huge amount of our time. I mean, we're doing this, um, you know, in some portion, six or seven days of the week uh, in terms of, you know, we're not necessarily at the winery seven days a week, but we're doing something related to work mm-hmm. seven days a week. And that's that's. Uh, and if you don't, if we didn't have the passion for it, then yeah. we're not in it for the money. Clearly. Yeah. So. Right. Exactly. It's the it, it it's your crappy band from high school. Yeah. Is that we're in know, a crappy band. We're in a crappy band, and, and we we're don't. doing it for the the fun of it. And we can't. The goal can't be to like become rich and famous. The goal is to hang out, have fun, and like make music, crappy music together. What instrument do you play? The triangle, obviously. Oh God, I want the sousaphone. <laughs> okay, you can be the no. sousaphone. Yeah. So this is like the VFW hall then. This yeah. is oh, it right here. Yeah. Okay. This is it, Got yeah. It. yeah. Yeah, with more garage doors, yeah. Yeah. Every year, one more garage door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's just like, it seems so hard because it's like, how, how do you make the relationship work? I mean, I think part of it is just like, there's always going to be the work aspect of like, uh, yeah, making sure that we're communicating and um, and trying to be kind and considerate to one another, but then also realize that there are going to be moments where that person is going to be an asshole. It's never me, by the way, but just <laughs> that you have to be accepting of that person for who they are and and just like with the wines, the, it's they they are our children in like the kind of silly sense that um, you can't force it to be anything that it doesn't want to be, and so you can only kind of steward it towards its best self, and it's got it, it's going to do the rest yeah. for itself. She's also the nicest person I know. <laughs> Make him say that. <laughs> That's true. Money, yeah. please. Knife. <laughs> the knife fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? 
I don't know if you have enough batteries. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah we better yeah, just yeah, we should, it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can always go back for part two. When exactly. The time. There we yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. We're, we're here. Yeah. I'm excited to see the I time capsuleness of uh, your overall project. I think yeah. that that's really uh, super exciting for both of us. Not just yeah. obviously for our portion, whatever. That's fine. But I just I like the right. idea of being fact, able to I capture. I don't think I'll ever listen to this because oh. I think it will just make me die. But but <laughs> if, if it's interesting because at first we were like when this project was started that we. Uh, yeah, I think I had like the reaction of like, oh man, who wants to just sit and listen to a bunch of wine makers yammer on for like hours at a time? Yeah, you may, yeah, I don't know, you may be questioning your life decisions here as we often do. But just the, like, it is cool. Like we just like, we listen to to interviews with other winemakers, like, um, you know, through, through the uh, through your channel and it's cool to- Oh my God, on the way down we listen to Elizabeth Clark and they're like, my God, she's so smart. Mm -hmm. she's, so, she's a genius. She's so yeah, smart. and it just was really cool that it's like getting other people's perspectives on stuff, especially because like we're out here in the sticks and we don't really get to like, I don't know. It's like we day camp was really fun because we did get to have that more collaborative, like someone like right there where you can literally like walk across the room and be sure. like, smell this or try this barrel or tell me what's wrong with this, versus here it's really just us. That's not true. You have Gabe. Yeah, that's not true. I have, yeah. I have definitely sounding boards here. That's yeah. not true. But, yeah. yeah but, it's different. but the it's different. wider, yeah, like, sure, sure, yeah, sure. more people, the yeah. world at large here. So yeah, it's cool. Cool getting that perspective. Yeah. Yes. Elizabeth right. Clark is so smart. Yeah. It's insane. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. It's unreal. There's a lot of smart people. I don't know. That's why it's like the imposter syndrome is very strong with us. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm. Yeah. We're bad at math. Mm. That's I mean, why you, that's why you get into winemaking. Yeah. I mean, duh. I, yeah, right. I assume there's a lot of it, you know. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of bad math people making wine because oh, you, you sort of fall backwards into it. I, I it's it. like you oh, use yeah. the metric system and it's all you have to do is divide by ten. You're like, I can do that. That's easy. Like, why didn't anyone tell me this before? Yeah, it's so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. Well, thank you both yeah, so no, much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah, you sitting you. down with us. And thank you for the nice words on our project, too. It is. It yeah, that's yeah, really us. cool. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's really cool. And so we're very excited to be a part of it. Excellent. Well, thank you. We'll go ahead yeah. and thank we'll you. Go and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.